Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of You Thrive Every Day. I am so thankful for you guys for tuning in. We have another great guest. So Eric, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Let us know where you're from and um, where you are now. Hello, April. My name is Eric Taylor from Taylor to You Coaching. I am a native New Yorker, born and raised in New York City, and I currently live in Scottsdale, Arizona. Arizona. <laughs> All right. So, New York. All right. Oh, oh so. yeah. Proud, too. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, give me an idea of your upbringing. So, were you raised by mother and father, just father, just mother? Let me know what your background kind of is. So, I grew up in New York City in the Washington Heights neighborhood on 193rd Street. I was born in Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. And I guess about the age of five or six, moved down to 95th Street. So always on the west side of Manhattan in New York. Went from Washington Heights to the upper west side of Manhattan. I grew up with my mother and father, William Taylor and Cheryl Taylor, and had an older sister, five years older, Elise Taylor. And, um, you know, pretty normal first six years of my life and just, you know, growing up in New York City and, and um, good memories, you know, fun vacations and, you know, good you know good stuff my father had a business and my mother was a teacher so we um we were very much new yorkers and harlemites my father was from tampa florida my mother was born and raised in harlem and um but my father's business was in harlem so we definitely were like a, a harlem manhattan family okay and so were your parents together for the duration of your childhood Yes, yes. They were married uh, 16 years. And then unfortunately, in 1977, my father was murdered. Oh. Yes. So How my old were you at that point? I was six years old. It was before my seventh birthday. It was in May. And I turned, I was about to turn seven in September. And um, yeah, it was, you know, he was supposed to meet my mother for dinner one night and was going to meet her and didn't make it and he never made it there or home and he was murdered on 110th street in morningside drive in new york city in harlem wow yeah and my life changed forever i remember the police it was a friday night the police came to our home and my sister and i, I think we were playing scrabble and uh <laughs> and they came to the door and my mom sent me upstairs because I remember I could see uh, the apartment, the room, my sister's room overlooked the street. So I could see the, the lights in the police car. And that's what made me run downstairs. And then we, you know, she sent me upstairs and then she came back in and she's crying. And, you know, I'm like, what's wrong, mommy, what's wrong? And she told us what happened. And my sister immediately, she was daddy's little girl, she was 11. She started bawling, and her name is Elise. So I was like, Lisey, Lisey. And I was like, don't cry, don't cry. And then she was hitting the television, and I remember saying, I'll never forget this. It was like, it's like a movie, and it will be a movie one day. But it was like a movie, and I said, I said, Lisey, Lisey, don't break the television. Everything's going to be okay, you know. 
-hmm. And so, do you know, like, the backstory? Like, was he robbed? Was he just... No, it was, um, it was, you know, they, they wanted to kill him. He was a pretty powerful man uh, in Harlem and a, a banker and stuff. And he was well known and had a huge funeral, Riverside Church. It was a funeral like they had for, uh, what's his name, Ozzie Davis. Like it was, all of Harlem was shut down. Um, my father, you know, was friends with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Muhammad Ali. He knew uh, Malcolm X, he knew everybody. Uh, he was friends with the jazz musician who did a uh, soundtrack for Bridges of Madison County, Johnny Hartman. Um, yeah, I so. I a lot of influential people. Yeah, yeah, actually Kareem came to our house. I remember when, uh, Kareem, because he played at Power Memorial and that's how my father uh, knew him from Harlem. And Kareem came to my house one day and I just remember him trying to bend down and go through the door and I was, you know, like five, six years old and, and I'm just like, wow. But yeah, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was a friend of my dad's and Ali came to my house and <laughs> it was something else. It was, um, you know, yeah. So he was, yeah, he was, he was amazing. He was just a great guy, bigger than life, fun. Uh, and you said he was a banker? Yeah, he worked up in Harlem and he had his own store. He owned a laundromat and a candy store. So... Now, was there some street shit going on? Let's keep it real. <laughs> what was going on? <laughs> let's, just, let's just say, uh, I don't know if you saw, what's that, uh, the movie Hoodlum and the new TV show with um, Forrest Whitaker? Look, all you had to say was Hoodlum. The, God, the Godfather of Harlem. I'm close to 40, so you know, I know all about Hoodlum, honey. Yeah, so my... my Father, you know, knew Bumpy Johnson and, and uh, okay, yeah, started, you know, he used to work with him and for him and then branched out on his own. And yeah, so he was uh, well, known, as, known as Kid Taylor. So six years old is very young, yeah. So, was, how did you, if you remember, how did you kind of respond after the loss of your father? Um, I was tormented with nightmares for a long time. I had severely bad dreams. I remember, you know, I would run down to my mother's bedroom. She was like two floors down and I would run down and go sleep with her and be crying. And I had this recurring nightmare that I was like being taken or kidnapped and I went to go grab a library book in my school. And then all of a sudden it would turn into the back of a car. And then there would be two people driving the car and one of them in the front would turn around and laugh at me and he would have like this face of a demon. And um, yeah, I was like tormented. And then I also remember that, um, and it shows you how the young mind works. I mean, I, I thought, or I would have dreams or visions that my father didn't love us anymore and that he left and went to another family. So yeah, it was, it was tough. I went through, definitely went through a lot. It was a, a tough time. And then, and then there was, there was much more. <laughs> so my mother got remarried um, about a, less than a year later. 
to a family friend and a man who worked for my father. And um, he unfortunately, he idolized my dad and he told me years later, you know, apologized to me. He said, you know, I was trying to be Kid Taylor and there was only one Kid Taylor and I couldn't be Kid Taylor. But he, um, he, they got remarried. He was taken over my father's business. He kind of went through all of our money that was saved for my college, my sister's college, pawn my mother and my father's jewelry. My uncle was in uh, Korea. One, all my uncles are in the military. You know, my, my father's family's from Tampa, Florida. So all my uncles are in the military. My dad was a black sheep. He was like, he started, he started his own shoe shining business in Tampa, Florida to earn the money to move up to New York, to Harlem. Lived with his oldest sister, I think uh, Mary Alice. <laughs> he had two sisters and four brothers, three brothers. There were six of them. And um, my grandparents were just uh, the best. But he, um, so he got his own shoe shine business and then got enough money to move to, to Harlem. Um, probably in uh, 1952, 53, moved up to Harlem and just made his way and, you know, built up everything and created his own empire. And he was a self-made man, you know, probably back then at that time, unfortunately, African-Americans were not really allowed at like Wall Street and he didn't have the funds for, you know, to get only elite, only elite families were going to college at that time. And so he was poor. But he would have been, he probably would have been a big time stockbroker on Wall Street. I mean, he had a brilliant mind for mathematics and numbers and, you know. But um, so he, he, um, my, he took care of his younger brother, my uncle Bernard. Um, and my uncle at the time was not happy with my stepfather, uh, nor my mother, because my stepfather was kind of messing things up. And my uncle, was, you know, his brother, my dad was his everything. You know, he, my father gave my uncle a job, a car, an apartment, purpose, you know what I mean? Like everything. And um, my uncle one day kind of lost it and he shot my mother in the head point blank range and left her for dead. And my mom, She's a badass chick. Okay. My mom, I always say, because she's still here alive today. So I always say with my mom, the, the, the title of her book is should have been on Oprah twice. Okay. So Cheryl Taylor, Harlem born and raised, even a teacher in Harlem, she got up with her brains oozing out of her head, got in her Mercedes Benz that my father had bought for her right before he was murdered named it lipstick because it was like right bright cherry red and um she drove got in her car drove stopped at the lights parked the car went inside the store and then dropped and they rushed her to columbia presbyterian one of my father's old friends knew one of the doctors there and his name was uh tommy green he he called up one of the doctors and you know and so this doctor kind of got famous working on my mom, which nobody, nobody in seven, this was 78, had really, you know, people weren't surviving things like that. Uh, and no. they, <laughs> so they, um, they, you know, had to obviously rush her into surgery, all this stuff. So they had to put 
they were able to get, I think, a bullet out or half of a bullet out, but there were still bullet fragments that remain to this day in her brain. So she can never have an MRI. But they had to put like a mesh screen in her, in her head, in her skull. And um, they didn't know how she was gonna be. They kind of thought she might be a vegetable. And she, my mom took a year sabbatical from her teaching job, teaching fifth grade. She relearned everything, walk, talk, everything. Fine motor, PT, OT, speech. And she went back to work in one year. Oh now they, they said, all the family members and different people, because I didn't know, they said the thing that had changed, her personality had switched a little bit. But besides that, to me, I didn't really know. I was, what, seven at the time. This happened before my eighth birthday. <laughs> so before oh the summer, <laughs> so May before my seventh birthday, and then June before my eighth birthday, both my parents were shot. And I actually was there at the house and got a phone call. And someone, some crazy person called my house and I picked up the phone and they were like, your mother's dead. She drove off to George Washington Bridge. And, and then my babysitter, I guess, or whatever, I picked up, you know, got on the phone and I got off. And, but for a moment there, I was like, I just remember thinking, well, I don't have any parents. Like, what am I gonna do? You know what I mean? Like, it was just, I can remember like being frozen almost, you know? And, um, so we, they took my sister and I, some family members were against it and then some people were for it. But I think it was my sister's godmother who said, you know, let, we don't know what's gonna happen to Cheryl, so let the kids come to the hospital and see her. You know, and um, that was, I get it. And I think that's the right thing to do, but it was not good because it was traumatic. Because I just saw, you know, all her hair was shaved off. She was completely bandaged. She couldn't really talk. And I just. So that's I, a difficult situation. Yeah, a lot of, I, I've blocked out. There are a lot of things that I probably can't remember that I've blocked out. Um, but I think over the years doing my own uh, introspection and therapy and stuff, things that led me to become a life coach, right, um, helped me kind of heal and understand, not always remember, because some memories I would probably have to go in some sort of like hypnosis or deep, you know, psychotherapy. I did go to counseling after my father's murder. I remember that. But for me, it was just like going to play catch in Central Park with some tall white guy, you know? <laughs> but he was really nice, I remember that. Um, but it was, uh, it was intense. It, I mean, what, I, I don't, you know, there's no other way to describe it, right? I mean, for anybody on so the outside. Having, you know, foresight now and awareness, you know, um, would you recommend, I mean, because that's a situation that a lot of adults and children go through when you have somebody that's in the hospital under those conditions. And like you said, people felt like, you know, you guys should see your mother. Um, if you were another adult in that situation, would you want that to be done or... It's now that you have to wear it's difficult, right? Because 
they didn't know because no, like I said, nobody was surviving that. So they literally were like, will she survive the surgery? Will she survive period? You know? So I think in a way, um, I would, because I wouldn't want my children later on to be like, you didn't even let me say goodbye to mommy or, you know, you don't, do you know what I mean? Like, and then in our case, we didn't have, I had my stepfather, but we didn't have my dad already. So like, I, I get it, you know, and I, I agree with it, even though it's traumatic. <laughs> exactly. So as she's healing, who's taking care of you and your sister? So we had a babysitter slash housekeeper named Nicholas Robinson. And we called her Nikki. She was Puerto Rican, about your complexion. And just um, my angel, my heart, my soul. She was, um, she was just, you know, the best caregiver and just held everything down. She was very close to my father. Um, my father, you know, was very close to her. You know, my father was the type of man that he would literally Thanksgiving, Christmas, like feed half a Harlem, Thanksgiving turkeys, Christmas turkeys. He would pay people's rent, like literally pay their rent for them. You know what I mean? Like, so we were taught at a young age, charity and giving back and all that type of stuff. And Nikki was, um, you know, the person that really held it down. You know, I don't, so much of it is a blur. I know my sister, my sister at 11 and 12 used to help me, you know, she remembers, so she would tell me stories. She would help me do my homework. She had to cook dinner. Um, and, you know, I don't remember like my mom going through the therapy. I just, it's all a blank. Okay. For me, you know? So what about stepdad? Where is he at at this point? Um, he's around, but he got addicted to cocaine and was... Okay partying and cases of Cristal and Bahamas for the weekend and yeah. He was like, yeah, he was, he was partying and not being a stepfather or a father or anything. So. And so what was the deal with your uncle? So like, do we know why he shot her? Was well, he, he felt like they, my uncle was kind of running the business. And then when my mom got remarried, my stepfather took over and he didn't like that. And then my stepfather and my mom were not being so nice to him. And he was emotionally unstable and fragile. And, you know, in my head, I'm like, if you go shoot anybody, <laughs> shoot my stepfather, don't shoot my mom. <laughs> like, what sense, what sense does that make? But... He, but he um, probably, you know, you guys are East Coast, so it's real with the respect and the loyalty. So he probably felt that she owed him that. <laughs> like, this ninja over here ain't family, you know, whatever with him. But yeah, you know, exactly. I think my Uncle Bernard, because, you know, like I said, my grandparents, you know, devout Baptists from the South. My grandfather was a deacon in the church. So they actually wanted my father's body buried down in Tampa, mm. in Harlem. And so there was just a big divide in the family, which was really hard on me 
because my grand, my, my mother's father was alive, but my mother's mother died when she was 14. Mm. So I only knew my grandma. And I loved my grandma in Tampa and my grandpa in Florida. Like she was, you know, she was like tight. You know, I remember getting a spanking, getting the switch off the tree and she was like, Wah! you know, and we had a big brawl one time because I didn't want to eat my, my hominy grits. And so I was real stubborn. And she said, if you don't eat those hominy grits, you know, you're going to have to sit here and eat them. And she's like, if you don't eat them, you're going to have to go straight to, to nap and you can't watch Rin Tin Tin. Rin Tin Tin was like my favorite show at the time. This is like, what, 75 or something. And um, I refused to eat how many grits. And I sat at the table, they were getting cold. I, I just was not going to eat it. I didn't like how they tasted, whatever. So I guess I kind of won that battle and lost it because I didn't eat it. She sent me to bed. I took my nap and we just were like banging heads. You know, she was the Libra, I was the Virgo. We were just like banging heads. And, and, um, and I, I and I swore that day I would never eat hominy grits for the, Again. For the rest of my life. And I have I'm 49 now. I'm gonna be 50 in September. I have never, never, ever had hominy grits again in my life. You know, you just put some butter and the sugar on the grits. <laughs> now I'll eat some cream of wheat, but I don't do hominy grits. I guess my grandma scarred me, yo. It was like, you know, we we had that battle. But so, you know, my uncle, yeah, I guess he felt disloyalty. They were all upset that my mother got remarried. But you got to remember, my father was nine nine years older than my mother. He was forty five. She was thirty six. She had an 11-year-old and a six-year-old. She basically went from her father's house to getting married. She got married at 21 with my dad. She was graduating college and then becoming a teacher. So my father was like her husband, like her end-all to be-all, her everything. Exactly. And so he, he passed, her, that's why she chose someone. Treated her like a queen. So she had never been alone. She didn't that was a lover of her life. She didn't, she didn't know how to take two steps. Yeah, she didn't know how to function. Yeah. I think, matter of fact, I think if I remember my sister telling me, I think we missed my father. Like, I don't think we showed up at my own father's wake. She was that comatose, like, you know what I mean? Like she, we were, you know, of course the funeral was whatever, but like she couldn't even, it was that traumatic, dramatic, everything. Like she was gone. Like she told me years later, you know, she said, you know, basically that a part of her died that day. Yeah, that's, that's really real. It's really yeah. real. And especially when that's something, when that's all you know, like we forget how powerful the brain is and that it actually creates our reality, you know? Yeah, and I think so with her already knowing my stepfather, because they grew up together in Harlem, and the irony is, even though he was kind of wrong and how he was and all that, my, his sisters became my aunts and my stepfamily. That's like my family. So my cousins, you know, because our families already knew each other. You know, I said, you know, he worked for my father. His, one of his sisters, who was one of my favorite aunts, worked for my father. <laughs> Found out years later, his oldest sister was one of my aunts, went on a date with my father to the opera on a double date, you know, with my father's best friend who they were best friends at each other's weddings, best mans. And his son was my, 
my father was his godfather. It was my cousin and my godbrother. You know what I mean? So the families were already intertwined. Mm -hmm. And so then my stepfather, you know, um, I just don't think my father's family was able to accept that. And I'm not saying my mother was right or wrong. She was just surviving. Exactly. But I do think my stepfather- She had to deal with what was comfortable for her. Exactly. But like my stepfather, I think, took advantage of her, and I think he knew what he was doing. And that's, uh, definitely. you know, unfortunate. Like, he he was supposed to go to law, law school and become a lawyer. That's what he had told me. That's what my father um, wanted him to do. I was going to pay for him to go to law school and become a lawyer. And that okay. didn't happen. So, mom comes home from hospital and as she's going through her healing process, um, how long was stepdad around? Did he continue to be around or what? Um, so, so I just want to make sure I, I'm locking up my phone so we don't get interrupted. But he, um, their marriage only lasted, and I don't remember exactly, I want to say, three, four years the most. Um, but the damage was done in that time. And it was just a lot of damage. He was physically abusive to my mother. He sexually abused my sister. And I didn't know that until like adulthood, like, you know, and it was right before he died of cancer and I spoke to him about it. And he- Oh, no, you broke up a little bit. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me good? So. Okay. So you said so, he was abusive? He was physically abusive to my mother and sexually abused my sister. And he, I didn't find out about it until later on. My sister never told me. I had no idea. And I confronted him tell about anybody? it. Huh? Did she tell anybody or was this like the, her little secret? I... I don't know who she, I don't think she told anyone. And she's suffered a lot. She's, she's had a lot of emotional wounds and issues and now finally going through a divorce right now. She's just been through a lot. Yeah. But um, he, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I spoke to my stepfather about it and he admitted it and he apologized to me. And I said to him, I said, I'm a man. You need to apologize to my sister and my mother. You know, that's who you need to apologize to. How old were you at this time when you confronted him? Um, 37, 38. Okay. It was right around when I got married. Um, but he had gotten sick. I think he had passed away of pancreatic cancer or something. It was really sad and torturous and, you know. And so where was your, where was your mental at having this conversation with someone who, who you knew for fact violated your mother and, and then to find out that he violated your sister, where were you at mentally having this conversation? With well, at this time I was already a Christian, I became a Christian at 29 in 1999. So I really had, prayed on everything and 
in my mind, I had already forgiven everyone, including him. And I hadn't spoken to him in years, but we would randomly see each other and talk through different family members or my oldest aunt's funeral. And she had passed away and we had a funeral on Martha's Vineyard. And I had spoke to him then and, um, but I didn't know about that at the time. And that was in 04 and then I think it was 08. We spoke about it because my sister finally told me, I think in 07, 08. And, um, and you know, we, we had some good heart to hearts before he passed away. You know, and even in 04, when we spoke, you know, that's when he apologized to me for his behavior during the marriage and all that he did, you know, even, you know, choking my mom and stuff. And um, he, he had changed his life around, you know, and um, I have uh, two younger stepsisters and an older stepbrother. And um, you know, he had turned his life around, I think, on his third or fourth marriage. So did he give some kind of, or did he attempt to give some kind of explanation of his behavior to help you understand where he was? Or he, was he, he basically just admitted that he was uh, alcoholic and addicted to cocaine, and he just, he lost. And that's when he told me, he said, I was trying to be Kid Taylor. And he said, there's only one kid, Taylor, and I couldn't live up to it, walk in his shoes or be him. He's like, and for that, I am so sorry. That's exactly what he said to me, you know? So it was deep. It was, um, you know, and it's hard because like, you know, I had to mentally separate him from everyone else because everyone else took me in and treated me you know, his sisters treated me like I was their nephew. You know, my cousins are, you know, from this step marriage, you know, the people that I call, I had blood cousins, but these were not my blood cousins, but they didn't treat me. And to this day, we're, we're cousins, but you know what I mean? Like we're family and we don't think of it in any other way. And all my aunts, his three sisters, only one is still alive, just, just turned 84 on uh, June 14th. And she is an angel. Oh my God, Aunt Helena. And she is just, you know what I mean? And like, so, and my Aunt Barbara and my Aunt Eleanor, they passed away and, you know, broke my heart. And they were just, you know, they treated me like, like blood, like yeah, gold. They they loved me. You know, because they also honored my father and they loved my father. My Aunt Eleanor worked for my yeah, father and they knew him. For him. Yeah. And, and their, their mother, was also friends of my father, you know what I mean? They would see him in the streets and stuff, you know? So there was, like I said, the families were already intertwined, but I think for my family in Tampa, for the Taylor family, my uncle Bernard, like that, that wasn't the case and that didn't fly and, you know, but, you know, and then he passed away and years later, I confronted him in Tampa, Florida. When I was down there for, I went for two funerals, sixth grade and eighth grade. My, one of my uncles died and then my grandfather died in eighth grade. And I saw my uncle Bernard when I was down there and he apologized to my sister and myself for shooting my mother. And that was deep too. You know what I mean? So like I have these adult figures apologizing to me as a child and then as a young man and 
you know, it's, you know, in a way, it's funny, I'm thinking about it for the first time, right? Like this, these juxtaposed positions of people that are supposed to love and take care of you that brought more hurt and pain and, and, and harm to you and your, your own growing up and experience and family. It, you know, it, it wasn't easy. Well, let's, so take me through this journey now. Who, who is Eric at this point? You know, um, you've witnessed abuse, murder, <laughs> um, all these things before the age of 11, basically. So what's going on? So after your stepdad and your mother split, what's going on? Um, I don't know. I, I think for me, I was always into my sports and my music. Um, I love my Saturday morning cartoons, my superheroes. I think I would drift off into pretend worlds because the pain of my real life was too much. Um, I think as being an 80s baby uh, and a latchkey kid, a, a lot of television was raising me. Um, I learned to be extremely introspective as a child. And the irony is, right, and it's so deep now that I am into different things and even knowing astrology, I have a Capricorn moon. And I laugh at that because it talks about the Capricorn moon being an old soul or have feeling that responsibility to need to take care of your, the moon represents your mother in astrology and your family, but your mother, right? And so the need to have to take care or feel that responsibility to have to be uh, an adult as a child, but the, to feel like you have to be responsible to take care of your, your parents or your mother. And for me, at the age of six, I felt a responsibility for my mother and my sister. I felt like I had to be the man of the house at six years old. So I was very different from my peers. And I almost, and I guess in some way, I would joke and, and self-analyze and say I was like a sports nerd. Adults you would come to me to ask questions about sports. I knew sports better than the adults. I would read the paper, you know, people don't know about this anymore, right? I would read the sports paper, but I'd read the newspaper, New York Times, New York Post, Daily, New York Daily News, the Sporting News, Sports Illustrated. And I would read the box scores and the articles and I knew every stat for every baseball, football and basketball player. And I had a connection to sports that mean a lot to me because it helped me stay alive and I'm like, hello, you're from New York now. But then also through my father. My father had season tickets to the New York Knicks and the New York Giants. So I was um, a diehard Knicks fan. I became a Pittsburgh Steelers fan instead of a Giants fan because this was before my father passed. I remember watching a Steelers-Raiders game with him. And I guess he had liked the Raiders and um, or was rooting for him. But my mother, and I liked the, the black and gold jerseys of the Steelers, and my mother thought Franco Harris was cute. 
So I became a Steelers fan to go against my dad because she liked Franco Harris. And then I liked Franco Harris and Terry Bradshaw. And then growing up playing football, I was Lynn Swan. I was a great athlete and a great wide receiver. And so sports, after my father was murdered, that was my biggest connection and memory. And then going to Madison Square Garden because we were, you know, I was I like to say I wasn't there before Spike Lee, but I was I was down courtside before Spike Lee. So I was um, I was the young black kid in the garden. I used to talk to Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and Dr. J and Kareem and Isaiah Thomas and all the players because I sat I was right behind the visiting team's bench, and I would talk smack to all the players. Everybody knew me because I was loud, proud young black kid sitting. You know, I wasn't on the floor, but I was right on the ground and it was like five seats up. So I was literally courtside and I, the players could hear me and I would talk right to them. Magic Johnson, I hear him, you know, on the court when he played, he was like a coach on the floor. You could hear him yelling and Dr. J was my favorite player. I liked the Sixers and the Knicks, but I would talk to the players, you know, and you know, in in the garden and at that time, I stood out because there was nobody really black that low besides my family and then my, my father's best friend, Tommy Green's family. We had four seats together, two and two. And so, you know, and my father knew uh, the statistician, uh, Bootsy, uh, Bootsy Collins or Bootsy, no, not Bootsy Collins, the artist, Bootsy Thornton, or I forgot his last name, but he, Bootsy Raymond or Calvin, no, Calvin Ramsey. And then Bootsy did the stats and Calvin Ramsey worked for the Knicks as well. And so, we would get the stats. He'd come up to me and, hey, you know, my mom or whatever, and give us the stats at halftime. And I would talk, you know, I'm, everybody knew me, you know. So, and I would see, like, Domin- Gerald Wilkins when he was on the Knicks and Dominique Wilkins' mother, she'd come and sit down there about her fur coat. And I would talk to Dominique Wilkins' mother and different people. So I was known. And, you know, and then when Jordan came, the women started to come and they would give me their phone numbers on their business cards on a piece of paper so I could give it to, and this is the time, you know, when Spike came. So then he was down there and I would give the women's numbers from, <laughs> from the women to Spike to give to Mike. Oh, wow. Oh yeah, I'm a part of all that history. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead and name drop, yes. Oh yeah, no, 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 <laughs> listen, I'm walking my truth. So, you know, it was just, um, so sports, I think for me at that time, I was very creative. I would take the baseball cards and in my little bedroom, I would throw the ball off the wall and take the bat and I'd have my glove and I'd try to play catch. And depending on how the ball would bounce and this and that, and then I would run and dive. This is all by myself. I felt like I was an only child because my sister was five years older and she was a girl. So we were very different. Right. And I had friends and cousins, you know, I've always been very popular had a ton of friends and a lot of cousins, but I would, you know, life happens and you know, any kid you're alone a lot. And, um, but I would remember throwing a ball off the wall and I would catch it. And then I'd run to the bases and on all my baseball cards, I would mark, you know, and I'd have stats and I'd have my little notebooks. And people would just marvel at me, like, who is this kid? Like, because I would create like a whole season and stats and everything and category. So literally, like my mom would have parties or I remember being at my aunt's house in the summers or spend my summers from like seven to like 18 up at Martha's Vineyard every summer. And my aunt and everybody, they would just marvel at like, you know, 
just what I knew about sports and how passionate and how I was into it. And for me, it felt like a, a way to stay connected to my father, I think, you know, but it was also fun and an outlet. And, and then I just loved sports. It was just naturally who I was, you know. So, so all through, did this carry on all throughout your teenagehood, just the love of sports? Yes, but before 11, um, at around 10 years old, I went to the doctor one day because I went with my mom. So I had the seven, then the eight. And then at 10, we went to the doctor. I remember as a little boy, I still have to wear an eye patch because I had a, my right eye was a lazy eye and had poor vision. And I remember struggling in school. Like I started reading later than other kids and stuff. I wasn't dyslexic, but I just had poor vision. So I had trouble like reading and comprehending what I was reading. I was always smart, very intelligent, but I, I was just a slow reader, you know? So I remember I would go to the resource room and be taken out and go to the library one-on-one -on -one and do my reading. And I remember one of my first books that I read was a book about Muhammad Ali and another one about Pete Rose and uh, maybe something about Jesse Owens and you know what I mean? So like I, uh, maybe Babe Ruth. So I would, I would read these books about sports and you know, but I, I was just a slow reader. I couldn't keep up with the kids in class. And I, um, at 10, we went to the eye doctor because, so my mother's father, we called him Papa. His name was Andrew, Andrew Grist. And he was completely blind. So he had an eye disease called RP and it's retinitis pigmentosa. And what it does is that it, it deteriorates and messes up the rods and cones inside of your retina in your eye. It creates, it can create total blindness. It can create, you lose your peripheral vision. It can create night blindness. And so it's the way that it worked, it's sex linked. So my mother, the women become carriers. And then if they have a son, you could pass it on to the son. So my mother was a carrier from my father, grandfather, pop up. And so my sister didn't have it. And actually she did not become a carrier, but I have the eye disease. So I found out at 10 that I officially, or, you know, I didn't really know, had RP, retinitis pigmentosa. And they are still, we're still at the time learning more about it, but they kind of like, I guess to be honest, scared the hell out of me because they were like, you know, by the age of 21, you could be totally blind. So that was another thing I had to live with and carry. And then it became hard for me because the night blindness started to kick in around 10-ish. Then I had slowly, as I got older, the vision started to decrease enough to the point where at different ages I had to let go of different sports which was devastating for me because I was a very good athlete and loved sports. Like I said, the connection with my father and everything. So I, um, at 13 or 12, I had to stop baseball 
Little League, and I used to go play in Little League baseball in New Jersey. It was really good. Led the league in stolen bases one year and got an all-star trophy, played uh, first and second shortstop. And then the last year, I remember playing right field. And I remember one day, I could not see the fly ball from go from the bat up in the sky to the outfield. I lost, couldn't see it and lost track of it. And then, you know, and the ball, and I just put my glove kind of over my head so it wouldn't hit me on the head because I didn't know where it went and I couldn't see it. And that was kind of the start. And then I think the, I didn't play Little League anymore, but then I played a little bit in the after-school program. And it was called, like, we had a league called uh, Astros and something else. And I remember playing, and then I started to not be able to see the ball good enough to hit it when it was being pitched. And, you know, not like softball, slow, you know, I could hit that and see it, no problem. But like, you know, real pitching, like a fastball, hardball, you know. And so then, um, so then I stopped. And then I, at some point, had to stop. I think it was football and basketball. So needless to say, it all led me to becoming a track star in high school. So I tried out for basketball in ninth and 10th grade. And I didn't make varsity. And it was mainly because of my vision inside the gym. It was too dark and it was shadowy, the lighting. You know, this is the 80s, lighting in gyms, you know, it's not like some NBA arena with great lighting. I can see that. But, you know, when it's spotty lighting, that was trouble for me. And so I couldn't, you know, I had the skill, but I, because of my vision, I couldn't see the ball coming at me all the time or catch the ball off the rim properly, which was very frustrating because I could still play if I was outside street ball, you know. So, um, and then I tried it on JV and almost made the team, but then my, I was having an issue with my grades. But needless to say, freshman year, they saw me in the gym, the track coach, and he saw the way I could jump and this and that. And he was like, you're pretty fast and you can jump pretty high. He's like, have you ever run track? I was like, no. And he's like, do you want to do uh, the hurdles? And I was like, what? <laughs> and then so I started that and I did, did the freshman year, did pretty good. Um, as a freshman, I made it to the cities in New York City, made it to the cities, the city finals at St. John's University and placed in fifth place as a triple jumper. So to show you, I was a pretty good athlete and that was in triple jumping. I made it to the cities as a freshman. I uh, did triple jump, long jump, hurdles the freshman year and then I stopped that. Sophomore year, I got into girls and, and basketball so I left track alone. Then I went back and then I had this issue with my grades because I got like sick, bronchitis in the beginning of school year around my birthday and got really sick or walking pneumonia or something. Missed a couple of weeks of school and I was just behind the eight ball, you know, catching up. So I didn't do anything sophomore year. Then junior year, I went back to track and then really excelled and got like most improved. And I was doing no more hurdles, triple jump, long jump, 400, 800. Then my senior year, and we qualified for Penn Relays. Then my senior year, we won the Manhattan Borough Championship, 1989, um, at Indoor uh, Track Championship. And we had beat George Washington High School, which was big because they had won like 13 years in a row. And then Martin Luther King High School. And my high school was like the melting pot. It was like our track team was Jewish, Irish, Chinese, Japanese, Black, uh, Jamaican, uh, um, 
the Dominican, Puerto Rican, like we were everybody, right? So we were dope. We were like, yeah. And, and George Washington High School was in Washington Heights. And ironically, my mother went there. But it was mainly Black and a lot of Dominicans. But a lot of the Dominicans were older, you know, because there's just, you know, the grades and stuff like that and the birth certificates, right? So they had some ringers on their team. You know, you got kids competing. They got the full mustache and beard. <laughs> and, um, you know, so instead of being 17, they might have been like 19. I don't know. But anyway, it was a big deal. They had won 13 years in a row. We defeated them. And we won, my relay team, we won the 4 by 400 relay and, um, and came in first place. And I was on the relay team. And so it was just a great, so it was dope that I could transition the sports, even with less vision. I took it where I couldn't do baseball and couldn't do basketball, couldn't do football and said, you know what? Okay, I can see good enough and I'm gonna excel in track. And I played tennis as a young kid. I'm a great swimmer, like I was a good athlete. And so it was very frustrating for me because that wasn't my fault. I couldn't, couldn't control my vision or my eye disease, you know? But so with all part, that you right. went through during your, your teenagehood, um, were you getting in, into any mischief or were you just so focused on sports? Like that was where you got lost in, you know? To be honest with you, no. I was always a really good kid. I followed the rules. Um, I wasn't perfect. You know, I, I remember we would, um, you know, New York City kids grow up fast. So between that and then having older cousins and summertime on the vineyard and we had freedoms, I remember started drinking um, Mad Dog 2020 and um, Southern Comfort and Coca-Cola, you know, around 15, 16 in high school. We'd go see, we saw the Freddy Krieger movies in the movie theater. We were all drinking and stuff like that. And um, but that was about you it. Guys you know? Getting the alcohol, huh? Where were you guys getting the alcohol? Oh gosh, you know, from bodegas or then from older kids. You know, like in New York City, you can you can get whatever you want at whatever what age you want. So the bodegas, you could go in and get a forty. You know, and pretty much whatever age you want. You know, they didn't really check and you know stuff like that. I never smoked cigarettes. Um, and I didn't try smoking marijuana. I remember I had a joint, I think I was like 17 or senior year or junior year high school or something, but it wasn't that big of a thing. And I just tried it a couple times and, you know, and ironically that was with my white friend. <laughs> he turned me on to that and uh, we joke about it to this day. But, um, you know, but I just mainly just, you know, I would drink and, you know, but, you know, my mother was a school teacher. And Cheryl Taylor, like I said, born and raised in Harlem, taught fifth grade in Harlem for like, what, 35 years? Mama didn't play. So she was stern and strict. But with me, she said, look, you just be honest and tell me where you're going, what you're doing. And you can do it. But if you say you're going to be home at 12, be home at 12. If, you know, if I know where you're going, you know what I mean? It was like that. She trusted me. Because you got to remember, I was really mature. I mean, look at all that I had been through. <laughs> you know what I mean? I wasn't really like my peers. I always had a wisdom. Like, honestly, I laugh. And I remember talking to a couple of friends on Facebook about I was a relationship coach sophomore year of high school. My homegirls, like my girlfriends, they would ask me advice. Oh, what do I do with this? And what do you think about that? And I was always that type. I would always give that sage advice and wisdom 
And needless that I, you know, I had no idea that would come into the future, right? But that's, I was literally a relationship coach at like 15, 16 years old. I would, you know. Wow. Like, so so like, yeah, sure. no, it was okay. deep. Like, I just, I always had a deeper, I think, insight and understanding about people and experiences and life. And I guess it was based on all that I had lived through and gone through. You know what I mean? I mean, you don't know anything different from what you experience and live, you know? Yes. And that's what I was going to say. Thank God for sports, because for most inner city children, when you go through so many traumatizing events, it's so easy to get caught up into what we call that street life. Yeah, well, no, trust me. And I had opportunities to deal drugs, to take or get into taking real types of drugs and deal real types of drugs. I had opportunities to get into a lot of bad stuff because it was, it was around you. I mean, in New York City in the 80s, I mean, you know, that was crack and then AIDS and there was so much going on. And, you know, we we were very independent, you know, and there was, there were gangs. I remember gangs, the, the Decepticons were really big and they would come to different high schools and they would jump kids. And I remember a kid getting hit over the head with a baseball bat and he snatched his gold rope chain, you know, like right, right in front of me. Like, you know, we used to experience these types of things. And, um, yeah, I gotta say like, you know, I was, I was a pretty good kid. You know, I just, well, then take me through, because, I mean, that is some scary shit, you know, <laughs> for a doctor to say to you, okay, look, kid, you know, at about 21, you're probably going to be completely fucking blind. Yeah, it was, It. I definitely would say I went through some times of depression. I can remember having thoughts of suicide or running away from home, you know. And so what stopped you? Um... I knew I was loved. I knew I knew that my my grandfather was amazing. He worked for the the um the railroads, the train system in, in, in New York and Penn Station, which a lot of African Americans um, worked for in the, uh, you know, fifties and sixties, you know, they would take the tickets and stuff like that and work on the, the, the subways. And I remember he told me a story one time he held the subway. So, um, I don't know if it was Jack Johnson or some heavyweight fighter could get on the train so he could go from New York to Philadelphia for his heavyweight fight. And he caught, uh, balls from Babe Ruth, um, up in, uh, up in, uh, in somewhere in Harlem, they lived on uh, 155th, 157th up in Harlem. And, you know, my grandfather was totally blind, but he loved sports too. And um, he was this amazing storyteller and he would tell me these stories. They're from, so my mother's family is from the Bahamas. They're from Nassau. Um, and so my grandfather was Bahamian and his the, there were, his father had died at a young age. There was no penicillin and he got an infection from a bicycle and it killed him. 
you know, and cut him and then killed him. So that, you know, it was just wild, right? He died like crazy young. But so his mother was a single mother with four or five boys. All of them were blind except for one, my grandfather, Uncle, uh, Uncle George. And, um, and they, um, you know, Pop Pop was maybe the second or third oldest, I don't remember, but there was, you know, there was, I remember Uncle Bunny, it was Uncle Vernon, and Andrew, George, and uh, Rusi, or I think Uncle Rusi. So, you know, and so he, he just, I think that there was some sort of hope. He scared me though. I remember as a child, I was afraid of him in a way because of the blindness. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I was a little scared, you know, but, but I loved him. And I remember my mother would go up and we'd go up and she would read his mail. And, um, but he just, he was bigger than life too, in the sense that he didn't, I felt like he didn't let it defeat him. And he would travel and, you know, him and his wife would come down for the holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas, and they'd get in a cab and he'd use his cane. And he was very independent, you know what I mean? And he, um, but he was devastated. But he had his life to model after, basically. Yeah, so, but I didn't tell you this. I forgot, I forgot to tell you. Yeah, no, but I forgot to tell you this. Uh, this was another thing. So my, my grandfather, he was devastated. This is my mother's father, Papa. When my father was murdered, he kind of lost it. And he tried to commit suicide and jumped out of the window. Third third, second or third story floor. He didn't die, but he fractured and broke a bunch of bones. And, and it was just, it was scary and devastating. And imagine doing this being totally blind. Right. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was heavy. So, you know, but he survived that and he lived until I graduated college and he was so proud of me. And, and yeah, he just, um, he was amazing. He, he was amazing and he would tell you these stories and just, you know, but he, you know, and he was, oh, and he was a masseuse too. He got, I think he got his masseuse license, became a professional masseuse. So he was really good with his hands and I got that gift from him because I, I never became a professional masseuse, but if you asked anybody, they'd be like, oh yeah, Eric's a professional. Because <laughs> I, I used to give massages to all my coworkers, obviously all my girlfriends, you know, now of course it's only for wifey. But you know, like I was, like I just have healing hands and it's really, I think a gift from God, you know? I, I always, um, and I remember even in high school, I would massage girls that would sit, sit in front of me, you know? <laughs> Mm -hmm. so I was uh, yeah so but uh, it was a great gift to have you know so okay, so take me through the journey of high school so now um you were running track um you're doing really good at that so what what happens next um high school was up and down I mean I felt good I had a lot of friends popular you know I had a couple of girlfriends a couple heartbreaks um I know one of them was like really devastating for me. I was like, oh, so depressed and heartbroken. You know, you think everything's the world's ending. And, you know, this girlfriend breaks up with you. And, but um, but I um, <clears throat> had a lot of fun, a lot of friends, all different cultures, religions, everything. Just, just a lot of fun, great memories. Um, but I, um, you know, I do remember it being hard because I, it was hard for me to face my own disability. 
And I think if I would have, it would have been easy for me. I didn't, I should have gotten extended help for the SATs, even in high school, because of my vision. You know, I was really borderline legally blind. I didn't get declared legally blind until sometime in my college. And then I finally got the help and it really helped me academically because I was always smart. But, you know, you can't do good on a test when you have time and you're a slow reader because of your poor vision. You know what I mean? It's just, it's not possible. So, you know what I mean? And I, that was my fault and my mom's fault. And, you know, and I needed more help and more assistance. And so that was difficult. Um, And so my grades would go up and down. If I had a teacher that cared and I liked them and I could tell they liked me or cared, I'd get an A or a B. If I had a teacher that was kind of like BS and just whatever, and you know, what, and I didn't think they liked me or cared, I'd get a C or a D. So I was a very average student, but then I would excel when it was right, you know. So it was. So I wound up graduating. I went to a community college, Sullivan County Community College, upstate New York, in um, Lock Sheldrick, New York. It was a great experience. It was tough. It was uh, a lot of tough kids. You know, kids from Long Island who never seen a black kid. You had uh, kids from different places upstate New York didn't know black people. Then I had kids coming from the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Queens. Some of them from like the hood hood, who you know were different from me. But you know, but we got along. You know, like it was just it was a melting pot. But it felt like a little bit of. And this is a, not a knock on community college, but it felt like 13th and 14th grade. Does that make sense? But, um, but it was a great experience. And I think after I broke up with my girlfriend, or she broke up with me, then I just put everything into work. Got on the dean's list. And it was the first time that I started really excelling in school. I had like a G point, my uh, grade point average. What were you majoring in? Um, so for... Uh, for the associates, it was just, you know, liberal arts, you know, I didn't like focus on anything else. And um, I wound up getting a three, seven, and then like a three, nine, my sophomore year, I made the Dean's list. Uh, the first year, I think I had struggled with like a two, four and a two, seven or something, you know, whatever. And so then I really excelled once the girlfriend had broke up with me and I was just all about my books. I would go to school, stay in the library. And then when I would come home to my, you know, we had little apartments off campus it was um, then I could just have fun and party because I didn't come home to do work. I did all my work at school and they had a little cafeteria and I would eat there and I would come home. And when I came home, it was time to play Madden and Techno Bowl and listen to music and drink and party with all my friends. But when I was at school, I just stayed there and did my work and grinded it out. And I I was so proud of myself because I I realized that, hey, if you really focus and concentrate and apply yourself, you can get honors and all A's and you're really smart. And you know what I mean? Cause I, I had self-esteem issues about that because I would question my own intelligence or smarts. You know what I mean? Because I didn't really have, I guess that wherewithal to understand that like, no, you're not dumb. You just are disabled and you need more time and a little bit more assistance or, you know, whatever. Exactly. So then when I got to Maryland, my grades went down again because my grandmother, my junior year of college, she passed away and I didn't find out until late. I couldn't go to the funeral. I was just, 
it was devastating. And I hadn't spoken to her in a while. So that was really hard. This is my father's mother. And that was difficult. And, you know, this was just right when, when Magic announced he had AIDS. And it was my first year transferring from a two-year school to a major university of 35,000 kids. So it was almost like being a freshman again, even though I was a junior. And so I was in the dorm and on my floor. Yeah, there was a couple of the juniors, but there was a lot of freshmen and sophomores. So then my friends were like everything. But I transferred down there with one of my good buddies, a good friend of mine who's Jewish, Brian Virjansky. And we transferred together. We were roommates. And we just knew Maryland was going to be the spot. And we loved it. And then I met some lifelong, just best friends. And, and it was a great experience. My major was radio, television, and film. But it was more behind the scenes. So I made a, I made a film. I was writing uh, commercials, learned about how to do that. I mean, it was all like behind the scenes, learning how to you know, do things. I had a little radio show at college. And then I started to get into really heavy. I was already into it in like the end of high school um, rhyming. I was an MC. And I was getting better and better and really good. And then I started to, you know, and I wanted to be a professional, record an album and all that stuff. So then in college, I started to rhyme on the radio show. We had a big popular radio show called WMUC, the Soul Controllers. It was these three D DJs, Malcolm, Jason, and Jason, these two white boys and this black kid, Malcolm. And uh, they were like, uh, and it was a dope show because down in that area, people would come down, all the rappers, and they would go to the main radio station at DC, WPGC, but they would also swing by the college radio station at the University of Maryland, the MUC, WMUC. And I'm talking, everybody came down there, the Fugees, but I, I wasn't really feeling them, so I missed meeting more Lauren Hill, and I kicked myself to that day, to this day. But I mean, from everybody from um, Smith and & Wesson and, and Black Moon and OC and the Fugees, Common, um, Nas, when he came, the, well, he came out in 94, it was right when I was graduating, but like all, you know, all these different rappers, Karis One came and I spoke with him and met with him, like, like so many people would come through and I got to meet and rhyme with different people. And then there was this one rapper who used to come to the station a lot and I met him and we started becoming friends and rhyming together. And then we lost touch and years later, he got on and his name is Cannabis. I don't know if you know the rapper Cannabis. Yeah. Yeah, Cannabis and I. So me and him used to hang out and rhyme together. And, um, but then we, you know, lost touch and I never caught up with him once he got on or whatever. But, but it was dope. When I saw him, I was like, okay, well, you know, I know Cannabis and me and him used to battle and go at it. Like if he can get on and I can get on, you know. But I, you know, I made albums. I recorded stuff. I never made it big. I was more independent. I, you know, didn't get a big label to pick me up or anything. But I wasn't also willing to sell my soul. And, you know, I was determined to rhyme, you know, like... What do you mean you wasn't willing to sell yourself? Well, so I wasn't going to rhyme about misogynistic, materialistic, self-hating Negro lyrics. I was going to rhyme more conscious like the people that taught me. Rakim, Karis One, A Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, um, people like that. That's who I, Slick Rick, that's who I grew up listening to. Grandmaster Kaz, Melly Mel. You know, I am... What I call myself is like, I, I am hip hop, like Harris one would say, but I am the younger brother of the originators of hip hop. Being born and raised in New York, I grew up with and around hip hop. You know, my stepbrother Jonas went to, high, went to grade school with Harris one you know, my sister, you know, I remember the, the, the parks, the, the DJs in the park and being around the formation in the early days of hip hop. 
And for me, you know, being born in 1970, you know, and being at that time, it was, you know, hip hop was blooming and growing up as I was growing up. And so hip hop was my first love. And, you know, I, I would never, um, I just, I think you, you, you rhyme for a reason. And I knew at a young age that hip hop would influence and take over the world. Obama was president because of hip hop. Hip hop is the most influential thing and in culture in the world. And it started in the Bronx and young black youth in America. And it, unlike jazz, the hip hop culture, we are willing to fight for it that we won't just let white people and Europeans take it and steal it. And then you don't even know the history like they did with jazz. You know what I mean? And hip hop, you know, it's the African drum that comes from the Africa and, and, and the islands through the triangle trade, you know, and Cool Herc was Jamaican, you know what I mean? And that's the, so the whole formation from Cool Herc to Africa Bambata. We were down with Zulu Nation, one of my good friends, his father helped take Bambata and Zulu Nation to London and to spread hip hop to Europe. You know what I mean? So that's my history. I, I grew up around Crazy Legs, Rocksteady Crew. The park that I grew up playing basketball in, two blocks from my house, that's Rocksteady Park. That's hip hop history. So I am literally a part of hip hop culture and hip hop history. And, you know, hung out with Crazy Legs and all these different guys. And we used to battle in the streets and break dancing and up rocking, b-boying and tagging, graphing, graffiti. You know what I mean? So that's how I grew up. And that's who I am, you know, I, you know, that's how I define myself is through hip hop really before anything. Wow. Yeah. So you guys are doing radio at this point, you're meeting all these celebrities. And so what's going on after that? So as I'm doing my major and my buddy at the time was uh, one of my best friends and he's an amazing MC and an actor and sketch comedy artist and I was in the sketch comedy we um he was in LA and he was him and one of our other buddies from my neighborhood my neighborhood is super talented like so many cats in my neighborhood are just we're all like my whole crew is like crazy talented and just doing it and so one of my good buddies um you know, I got a bunch of friends that are stand-up comics, but one of them is very successful. His name is Greer Barnes. He was in The Joker with Batman recently. And he's, you know, done a whole bunch of stand-up and on Letterman and Stephen Colbert and this and that. But him and my one of my best friends, Randy Cameron, they were on this sketch comedy show called Hardcore Television. That was in the early 90s. And they had a sketch called The Fly Fishing Jam. So they were doing that while I was at Maryland. And then Randy was going out to L.A. to get on and try to get a deal rhyming. So he was hanging out with, um, you know, um, what's her name? Fergie's crew and Will I Am. I always forget the group's name. Um, let's get it started. Uh, Black Eyed Peas. Black Eyed Peas. But at the time, they were called At Bat Clan. So he was hanging out with them and rhyming with them. And there were different producers and artists and this and that. And so things were happening and yada, yada, yada. And... So I was going to graduate college and fly out there and go like, you know, chill in an apartment with him. And we were, you know, going to be doing, you know, rhyming and pursuing acting and commercials and cartoon, you know, uh, comedy. And then a couple things happened. They had auditions in New York City for In Living Color. And so me and two of my buddies who are stand-up comics to this day, Sean Savoy and Ashoka Thomas, 
we decided to go to New York and they were going to stay at my place and my mom's and we were going to go audition for a living color. And they, what they had was very strict, right? You could only do character, original characters. If they recognized any of the characters from a living color, Saturday Night Live, any of the sketch comedy shows, immediately they were going to cut you. Right. You had to do three characters. You had 60 seconds or 90 seconds for each character. The casting directors stone faced you, grilled like, and you're sitting in a room. It was like down at um, uh, by uh, West 4th Street. There's a big casting place there, you know, and they were holding auditions there. And um, I remember when we went, my boys, they initially didn't make the cut. And then they were kind of like, oh, come on, we can do better. Let us try again. So then they got a call back. When I did mine, it was so scary because I have never done stand-up to this day. I'm thinking about doing it when I turn 50 because, you know, something challenging myself, right? I've always been in the sketch comedy, but not stand-up. Um, and um, just, I don't know why. It was just my thing. I just, you know, never had the desire, really. But, you know, I think I could do it because I do sketch, sketch comedy and characters. So at this audition, I came up really online. And it came from some of the characters just kind of like hanging out at the bars, being drunk and, you know, on campus in Maryland, we would have a bus and I would just be on the bus like 30, 40 people. And I would just break into a character and I'd have the whole bus, you know, I, I didn't even know most of the people, you know, in tears, cracking up, crying, you know, and I would just create these characters, you know, and so I'm doing these characters. I had this, uh, Farmer Ted Dredd, this Rastafarian who like lived in Nebraska and on the side of the road, he had like a, a gas station and a convenience store and all this stuff. And he was just selling everything from gasoline to joints to diapers to, you know, like stickers, whatever, whatever you needed, he had, you know. And then I had, so I had all these characters, right? And I came up with them. And so I did the audition. They loved it. I got a call back. So my friends, we went back, right? And then they had their uh, second thing. They didn't get it. They didn't make it showing on the show. Uh, sorry, fellas. I got to tell the truth, you know. And they didn't get the second callback. I got another callback. And then um, I auditioned again. I switched up the characters a little. You know, I want to freak them a little, you know. And then, um, and then I got another callback. And this time it was with more casting directors and more people. And I was meeting more higher ups. So then they um, sent me a, a letter and they told me, well, you're going to be selected and flown out to Los Angeles to meet with the uh, producers of In Living Color. And you'll have a chance to audition for this show. Which was crazy, because then at the time, my boy Greer was out there and he was like, maybe you know not in sketches but like doing kind of like some background but he was just around the set of him excuse me of a living color but jamie fox was there at this time j-lo but remember the last year or two um damon wayans had gone and marlon and not marlon uh you know and i went to high school with sean wayans sw1 he went to humanities with me and marlon went to LaGuardia, so i already knew sean and marlon right and um but um whatchamacallit um Keenan Ivory Waynes, the creator and the producer, he had left the show. So 1994, May is when they announced the fall schedule, the TV schedule. And before we were flown out to meet with the executives and before I graduated from the University of Maryland, 
they announced the fall schedule and they canceled at Living Color. Wow. I was devastated. I was like, are you kidding me? Because I was going to go out to LA and kill it. Almost I famous. To, I was going to kill it. And, and everybody, both, like in Living Color, okay, because we do have some youngins watching it. Oh, like, yeah, some youngins, yes. So we got to let them know, like, in Living Color was the shit. And, the like, best sketch comedy show ever. Better than Saturday Night Live. Ever. And yeah. in Living Color was so big that, like, 90% of the people that was on in Living Color are Ooh. huge yes. stars. From Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was living out his damn car. He was homeless. J uh, um, um, Jamie Foxx, you know, I mean, the Wayne, all of the Wayne's brothers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and their kids. Yeah, the family is super talented. And, you know, and it's just, I was so, but so that happened, right? So it's like this close call. Then Spike Lee had auditions at Maryland and he was doing, I guess, like a lot of places for clockers. And so I got down to like the final, like three to five people for clockers, but Makai Pfeiffer got the role. So then I had these two close calls, I'm graduating. And then I said to myself, okay, maybe I won't go to LA. I'm gonna go to New York, I'm gonna study acting, become a professional actor and start, you know, doing, getting some stuff together and then go to LA. But then my mom got breast cancer. So I'm in the midst of studying acting in New York. So I decided not to go to LA because she could not, she couldn't like, you know, she owned a building and I had to manage it and take care of it. So I had to shovel the snow, take out the garbage, sweep. So I became like the, the groundskeeper basically of the, of the building. And so then I got a little studio apartment in the building and I just decided to get on TV and act in New York. I became a member of the Screen Actors Guild. I was in SAG, I was in AFTRA before they merged. So I had earned my way into two unions and then the third union, Actors' Equity, because I did a play called um, Small Potatoes. It was loosely based on this famous play by um, Nikolai Gogol called The Inspector General. And the play did so good, we got a good review in the New York Times and I had my picture in the New York Times and got reviewed and got my equity card. And I was on Broadway on Theater Row on 42nd between 9th and 10th at the John Houseman Theater. And we had like an eight week run, working six days a week. It was amazing. It was a blessing. This was in, what was that, 99, 2000. So that was, that was at that time when I got in that union, I got in a Screen Actors Guild. And so I worked on Anything shot in New York from like 94 to like 2001, I was on it. So what do you mean you worked on? Because I know you were so, doing things behind the scenes. So, so what happened was I stopped doing, I segued into writing, but I stopped doing like TV production and I didn't do any of that. I became really an actor. So I did a lot of student films. I did independent films. I did background acting. I did stand-in work. I did stunt work. I even did a stunt on, um, uh, I did, uh, I stood, I, I was a stand-in for Savion Glover on um, um, Bamboozled, one of my favorite movies from Spike Lee, because that's one of his deepest movies, right? And so I worked on Bamboozled, was hanging out with, uh, 
you know, uh, Tommy Davidson and Michael Rappaport, who we knew from New York. He went to high school with my buddy from McBurney. So I'm hanging out with uh, Tommy Davidson from The Living Color, Michael Rappaport. No, okay, hold on. I got it. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because I... <clears throat> so how was Tommy back then? Because I've met Tommy... And I'm not going to lie, when I met him, it was probably like 10 years ago, and he, I, did, I was not feeling Tommy, okay? I was okay. like, mm. I'm going to tell you the truth about a lot of people. Tommy Davidson was the nicest guy that you could ever meet. He was mad chill. Damon Wayans was not nice to me at all, and neither was Jada Pinkett. She was nasty. She, and I'm really? sorry. I'm Jada? Jada, Jada was like everybody's homegirl. <laughs> Jada was nasty, no eye contact, wouldn't say a word. And it wasn't like I was some groupie or just regular background. I was like inside the intimacy of the crew because I was a stand-in for Sabion. Me and Sabion became friends. We were chilling, you know, <laughs> hanging out. So me, Sabion, Michael Rappaport, Tommy Davidson, a couple other people, mad cool. Um, you remember Kid and Play? Play from Kid and Play came to the set. He was hanging out, chilling with Play. Um, it was cool. So I was a stand-in on, on, on that movie. Um, you know, I worked on some other Spike Lee films, but that was a really great experience. I got my SAG card working on um, The Devil's Own with Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt and Ruben Blades. And Ruben Blades and Harrison Ford, the nicest guys ever, treated me like a professional. Um, and I worked on One Life to Live. That's how I got my after card and got in that union. You know, I just did a lot of soap operas, TV shows, some commercials, a bunch of different things, you know. So enough to be a working, enough to be a working actor in a union and pay my rent and my bills, but not enough to be rich and famous. Like, but it was a great, great experience what, and a blessing. Let us know what actor unions are. What is, why is that? So, okay. So when you work on a project or a film and you're hired as non-union, Back in the days when I was working, I, my mom hated it. I would work on New York Undercover all the time. And actually, you might remember, because I was New York Undercover was the show. Everybody black watched it. Nobody was watching Seinfeld. We was all watching New York Undercover Thursday nights. And I was on one of the biggest episodes when Ice-T was the drug dealer. And me and my buddy were like these two drug dealers on the corner. And Ice-T, uh, you know, we were like down with his crew and then Malik Yoba, you know, came up to me and my boy. And I remember like, it was so funny because uh, Malik Yoba was mad cool too. But I remember my phone, and this is before cell phones. This is like 95, 96 maybe. Yeah. I mean, my phone was blowing up. People like screaming, I saw you on the internet! You know, like people I had spoken to from high school or college and not really so many high school friends, but a lot of college friends who I just graduated, I hadn't seen them in two years. They're like, yo, you're doing your thing. I saw you. You know, it was it was really cool, you know? And in my head, I'm like, oh, thanks. You know, I'm just grinding. I I'm wish grinding. you would have told Malik Yoba to put on some damn chapstick when we was No, kids. that's what everybody like, said. I know. Malik, Malik was, yeah, Malik was, he was Mr. Smooth, but he needed some chapstick surreally, right? I mean, every episode, I thought he had a condition. I was like, is this shit genetic? I know everybody, but he was really a good brother. Michael DiLorenzo wasn't as friendly, but Malik was mad cool. But it was a great show, and it was a blessing, and I made a lot of money on it. Not in the beginning, because this is what I was going to say. When you're non-union, you get paid slave wages. It's increased now, but back then, when I worked on Law & Order and New York Undercover, I would get like $35 a day, and you'd have to wait two weeks to get a check in the mail for $35. Okay. 
Then I put in my dues. And that's why I tell people, like, I'm 49 and I haven't been professionally acting for years, but I still keep my SAG card. And this year I actually got chosen to be on the nominating committee for the SAG Awards. So I, I will be able to vote and nominate. I, you know, you vote when you're a member on the project. But I will be the one to help nominate the actual TV shows and films for the Screen Actors Guild this year. So I'm really honored and excited to do that. But I will never give up my SAG card because I work like a slave, like a dog to get it. I will tell you, people don't understand television work, film work, you're putting in 12, 16 hour days, you're grinding, you're working at four. I mean, I'm going to set, mind you, mind you, I'm going to set three, four o'clock in the morning. I can't see in the dark. I'm traveling to New York City to sets all over Brooklyn, Queens, New York by myself, right? <laughs> and I'm, I'm traveling to these uh, sets and you there? Oh, I don't know if something happened. I guess April will come back on. Hopefully it's still recording. April. So if it is still recording, I will say stay tuned because I'll tell you some more. But I was working on these sets and grinding and working hard and all these things and just enjoying. The industry, coming back on, make sure she, uh, Are you coming back on? Question mark. I think I lost you. Hey Siri, read my text messages. Hey Siri, read my text messages. You have new messages from April and Don Kennard. April said I'm trying to reconnect now. Would you like to reply? No. Don Kennard said that's amazing. A face with open hands emoji, how wonderful. Hard work pays off cuz. It's all coming together for you. Very excited for you. Good luck today. Love you. Would you like to reply? No.
Let's see. Uh, April. Love, can you come real quick? We got disconnected. She's trying to reconnect it, but I don't know what I need to do. So you are importing file. Oh, she's right there. She's right where? She's, isn't she right here? Oh, okay, you just got it back. Okay. Okay. I don't know what the heck happened. I think it just kicked the clock. Uh, yeah. Let me see if we can get the screen back up. Wait a second. Record. So you're on a committee. Yes, I'm on a nominated committee. So it's just a, a nice honor. And they just announced the, the Oscars are being bumped back to April 25th, I think. And they'll continue or consider films till February this year, which normally I think is till November. And then I'm assuming I'm going to get an email, probably got a, I think I got one yesterday or today, that the Screen Actors Guild, which is normally a couple of weeks before the Oscars, will probably be moved back to early April or the very end of March now. So. I'm looking forward to it. It means I've got a lot of TV shows and films to watch. And it's hard, right? With this pandemic, there's not as many productions, but they're starting to get back to doing things uh, slowly. And there were things that were already done. And then you're honoring stuff that was done from last year anyway, you know what I mean? So, so it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. So I take that honor very seriously. And, and, um, and I just, I love being an actor. I, I miss being on a film set. Um, one quick funny story. I was on a deaf to, ooh, excuse me, deaf to Smoochie. Really funny comedy with Robin Williams. 
and Ed Norton. And I was uh, just a background actor in a, in a methadone clinic. We were pretending that we were like, you know, just like kind of like high on methadone and we we're trying to like, you know, get rehab or whatever. And um, I just kept doing some crazy funny faces and funny stuff. And the director of the film was Danny DeVito, the legend, little short Danny DeVito, who's yeah, married. Yeah, you to, know who Danny is. Okay, married to Rhea Perlman, who I worked on um, a movie with her. Um, oh, was it not Swift Justice? Uh, something I forgot. It was a great movie I worked on with her. With uh, I had to tell Fredro from Onyx. He tried to tell me that Onyx was the best hip hop group ever, and I had to like shut him down and like, nah, sorry, homie. So me and Fredro were talking and stuff on that set, go, going at it a little bit. Um, but, um, and hanging out with Terrence Howard, who I worked on uh, with The Best Man and also on that movie as well. But so Death to Smoochie, Ed Norton was playing like a Barney character. So he's playing the guitar and he's like, you know, let's get off this smack because it's not good for your back and trying to be funny, right? And he was trying to come up with stuff and he was sort of improv but you know it wasn't working and it wasn't that funny and you know but meanwhile while he's doing that i'm doing all this stuff and i had everybody around me in tears cracking up danny devito himself the director comes up to me and he says i want you to know i've been watching you i gotta say you're really funny and i was like thank you mr devito i appreciate that and you know and Edward was hating he was so jealous <laughs> I was like, I love telling that story because it's just so funny, man. DeVito was giving me love and Ed Norton was jealous because I, I was shining. I was a star. Right. You know? Okay, so take us through that journey after. So now we're done with college. We're done the In Living Color thing. So like, what's going on? Well, I worked on, I also worked on different sketch comedy shows. So I worked on House of Bugging with John, uh, Le uh, John Legazamos. And we connected on there, whatever. I wish I could have, could have got to work with him more. So I worked on that show. I worked on the second reboot of The Cosby Show. Um, and I knew uh, uh, Felicia, because Felicia Rashad, her son and I grew up together. His name is uh, Billy Bowles, really cool, like a family member. And, um, and so I, um, you know, for me, like, I just, I just loved it. I love doing independent and student films. And sometimes I got to be the leading role. And, you know, sometimes I did a film with Luther Vandross' sister, one of the independent films I did. I didn't get to meet Luther, but his sister, before she passed away and before Luther passed, it was very sad. She might have had cancer. Did a film with her. She was so sweet. And, uh, and that, that, I think that might have got a little noise in Tribeca or one of the film festivals, but it didn't, you know, get to blow up. We were, they were trying, the director was trying to get it to HBO, but it didn't work out. So then later on, um, the years went on, I kept doing, you know, different jobs and working with different people, different movies and stuff. And, you know, like now that you know me, you might see certain films and you'd be like, is that, is that Eric? Wait a minute, you got cut off again. There you go. I was about to say, you got cut off again. What's going on over there? Okay, so um, so acting is going on, and so we're in college. So what's going on in your personal relationships and everything like that? Well, you know, as I'm in New York, and it's the mid-'90s, and then we have, you know, Kurt Cobain dies, Tupac dies, Biggie dies. 
and I'm rhyming, I'm acting, I'm like grinding through the city. I'm, you know, just, just dating different women, nothing crazy serious in the mid nineties. I had, you know, a couple of girlfriends here and there. I guess my friends would tease me and say I'm a serial monogamous. You know, I would traditionally, I guess, be with a woman maybe six to nine months, most 12 months, and then we'd break up, whether it was me or her or mutual. You know, um, some great relationships. I think I was just learning, right? Um, but I always knew that I wanted to be married and have children. And, you know, I tell people, and I'll tell your audience, you watch what you speak for, because I used to always talk about having twins. I was like, oh, it'd be dope to have the Taylor twins. Well, years later, I've got the Taylor twins. So, you know, so you just have to watch what you, you know, because you, I tell people universal law, words have power. So speak positive, speak healing, speak, speak success and victory. And I teach this in my coaching program, but I, this is this, it's biblical, but it's a universal spiritual law. It's life and you have to speak life and success. And I teach it to my children now, I teach it with my clients, but I, I even knew it back then because I tell people all the time, unfortunately, the people that killed Tupac and Biggie were Tupac and Biggie because they only spoke and rhymed about death. And when you do that, that energy will come to your doorstep. You know, it really does. So you have to speak success and victory, self-love, you know? And I, I know when I went to California in 99 and I connected with my half sister and her name is London Taylor. She passed away when we first moved out to Arizona in 2011, so rest in peace. But she helped lead me to Christ. And, you know, that was just an amazing time. And I was out there auditioning and trying to act and I was, staying with my good buddy Ashoka, who's a stand-up comic out there for a bit. And then I stayed a partial time with my half-sister. I was meeting with agents and stuff. And um, it was just, you know, I didn't, it was the holy setup. I didn't plan on becoming a Christian or going out there and all this stuff happening, you know, it just started happening. And I started going to my sister's church and Sheila E goes to her church and I met Sheila E and hanging out with her and some other people. And it was just cool. And I just, you know, and just one night I just, I was at Bible study and it just all came full circle. And, and I just, uh, I just surrendered and submitted and turned my life over to Christ. And it was just a beautiful time. You know, it was uh, February of um, 99. And then I got back. So what, is, what does that mean? You surrendered. What does that mean? So I became a born again Christian. And so i declared Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, you know, and I repented for my sins and I accepted Christ in my heart and became a full-fledged Christian, you know, and got into the Bible. I got baptized in April and then the next week I flew back home to New York. I spent about four or five months in LA. It was life-changing not just becoming a Christian, but it was life-changing just in so many different ways because I got a great bond and relationship with my half-sister who was from my father, but I didn't grow up with her. I didn't find out about her until my 18th birthday. She called my house one day and was like, um, can I please speak to Elise Taylor? I was like, Elise Taylor doesn't live here anymore. And she's like, well, can you just tell her I was calling and it has to do with her father? And I said, well, who, okay, her father's my father, so whatever you have to tell her, you can tell me. And she's like, well, are you ready for a long story? And she told me the story about how her mother and my father met and da 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 da. She was born and raised in LA and come to find out my mother knew about her and never told me. 
oh my god <laughs> and my mother you know yeah i tell you my life is a movie movie and then my mother my mother encouraged my father to take care of her because my step my half sister london her mother committed suicide because she was so devastated that she could not have my father and she was dealing with issues and depression and different things so my and then that was like 70 i guess you know or maybe she, no, maybe, did she do that after? I don't know, maybe she did it after, I can't remember. But, so she grew up with no parents and then she got molested by her uncle, her mother's. So guess, she's brother. like living a parallel life with life her sister. Yeah, yeah, got molested by her uncle, I think starting from the age of three or something. It was crazy, so. And so how old were you at this point when you got introduced to your sister? I met her at 18. And then we really reconnected. She came to New York and I remember we went to this Chinese restaurant, went out to dinner and me and one of my buddies was in town and my sister and her, my little sister London, we got together, had a great time. And it was weird, you know, I mean, like I was excited, but it was, I just, it was so many emotions, you know what I mean? It Cause, is. Cause it also made me feel like, well, dad, go on, my dad cheated on my mom because she was in between us, right? My sister will be 55. I'm turning 50. My sister London this past May would have turned 53. So she was right between us, you know, and, um, and, um, you know, so my, we got really close starting in 94. She came to my graduation in 94 in Maryland. And that really warmed my heart. You know, she was there. My sister, my little nephew was there. He was only five. He was born in 89. He's now like 30. So, you know, it was just a great experience. And, um, and then we started to bond. And then in 94, I went to LA and wound up staying with her for a while, you know. And so she introduced you to Christianity. She did. So at what point, because you're well, my also. My father was Baptist and my mother was Catholic. And I went to Christian school for preschool and I think kindergarten or pre-K. And, but then I went to private school to fourth grade. I went to Fieldston. And, um, and then, you know, then rest of the years were like in public school, you know. So how, so you're like an astrologist. Yes. And so how did, is that any contradictory to the Christian yes, yes, religion? Yes, So, yeah, so, um, and how did astrology come about for you? I, I've always kind of known about it and been into it. Um, my buddy who is, rest in peace, my buddy Kwame, who is a Taurus, like my sister who passed, um, and he died a couple of years ago, um, gosh, like five, six years ago. I've lost some great people since I've been out here in Arizona. One of my aunts, my best friend, roommate from college, and then my, my sister, you know? And um, Kwame, and I and my buddy Sean, we got into it a lot in college. But growing up, like I knew that my father was an Aries. I knew I was a Virgo. My sister was a Libra and my mom was a Taurus. Like we talked about it, even though my mom was devout Catholic, you know, <laughs> with the Catholic school, you know, she was a good Catholic school girl. My father was a Baptist. I told you my grandfather was a deacon. My mother was all in the grandmother was all in the church. Um, you know, I still have it. My father had this Aries the Ram thing, you know, so. I guess he knew a bit about it and must have believed in it a little bit too. I don't know. But, um, you know, I uh, knew my stepfather was in it. He was a Virgo and he would talk to me about it. Um, and um, so I just would learn things over the years. And then I started to learn more about it in college, a little bit in high school. And then in college, I got a book. It was like the, I guess the Bible of astrology it was this huge book and it breaks down all the signs 
but it breaks down like the, um, in astrology we call them deacons, but there's like, um, so let's say for me, Virgo, right? So you'll, you'll go from like August 20, like fifth to the second is like Virgo one, the first deacon. Then the second or the third to like the 10th or 11th is like deacon two. And then the 11th to the 18th is deacon three. So these are just aspects of each sign. You have three parts of the sign, right? And so I was looking the book and it, you know, I was born on what they call the week of the enigma. And I read about it and I was reading and I was like, wow, that is so on point. And it was almost like, and as I'm reading it, I look up and I'm like, somebody, like, is there a camera? Somebody watching my life, you know? And so I started to just read different things. And then I started to, and I guess I got to be honest and admit to it, because I only deal in truth. That's my thing. I named my son, my firstborn, William. His name is William Truth Taylor, because there's nothing more important than the truth to me. It's the only thing I deal in. And... Um, and I started to learn the truth about astrology and, it, and, and how it is in the world, what it is, the, the science that it is. And really it's been around for thousands of years before religions were formed, you know what I mean? And so I started to understand, um, you know, when you study ancient civilizations and you're studying Christianity and I, now I used to study everything. I've researched, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert or a genius, but I did research uh, Buddhism and five percenters and the Muslim faith. And I know a little bit about Jewish faith. I, you know, I'm part Jewish, you know, uh, my mother, her grandfather, his name was Bertram White. So my mother's side. Um, so he was uh, Jewish. So my mother's part Jewish and I'm like 15% Ashkenazi Jew. You know, I did those, you know, ancestry DNA. So I'm part Jewish, I'm Jewish, Bahamian, black, you know, Nigerian, all, you know, all these different mixes. Right. So, but, you know, when you look at the world and you look at history and you read and you research, you look at humanity, the Jews use the lunar calendar. The farmer's almanac uses, the, you know, in terms of how you plant things, right? It's connected to the lunar calendar. The moon controls the tides of the ocean, right? Everything, as they say, so above, so down below, right? And so I started to see these patterns and connections. And, and I'm skipping ahead, but as I was starting to understand astrology more back then, I didn't understand it on the deep sense that I do now. But I started through that book to read about each sign and then understand, you know, different things about the signs. And then I started to understand it in a way from meeting and, and dating women. So like if I met a woman and I knew she was a Libra, like I knew, you know, her, her rottenness zone. I knew what she liked, you know, what, you know, how to talk to her, you know, like I knew that for every sign. So then it started to become not like a game because I was never, I was never into deception or being mischievous about it. It was just about a way to relate to human beings, male or female, but then for dating, it was a way to understand the girl I was dating, you know what I mean? And to really understand them emotionally or mentally, you know what I mean? So I dated a Gem you know, Gemini's and, you know, I dated every sign really, but I would understand like, and understand myself, you know? And then I kind of got, and then I totally got away from it once I became a Christian and I let it go. I, I got rid of that big book, the astrology book, you know, and now I wish I didn't, but that's okay. You know, because, you know, you are where you are at different times of your life in different placements. And I don't, have regrets. I'm not perfect. I, you know, but I'm a pure soul and a pure person. 
I love Jesus and I still do. And I know that most Christians see it as a sin. Same with the Catholic church. I was just talking to a new client about that, but she even was talking about, you know, but the st she was like, but the wise men used the stars in the Bible to lead them to the, you know, to the baby Jesus. And I was like, yeah, that's right. Exactly. You know? And there's all these correlations and even Adam's first wife before Eve, Lilith, is mentioned in the Bible, I think only once. But the black moon Lilith is sort of the divine feminine. They call it like the female Pluto. But Lilith, this archetype, we live in a patriarchal system. And what's happening right now, the Me Too movement, the breaking, hopefully, of trying to heal humanity and end racism in America and the world, breaking down these structures of the one percenters and breaking down the structures of criminal justice reform and politics, right? This is all in the stars. So most astrologers knew this was coming and it was gonna happen, even the pandemic, they didn't know it would be this pandemic, but they knew something was coming, right? Like I knew months ago, after it first came to China, I knew it was coming here because I looked in the chart of China's chart and the way it was in the 12th house and the sixth house, I knew it was going to spread throughout the world. Right. So there's astrology. And I'll tell you the, the, the deal breaker for me. And I've been studying it now on this new level where now I can say I am really a professional astrologer. I'm not the best. I'm growing, but I'm very intuitive. And as a relationship coach and a chronic illness coach, I use it to help my clients. And I've been blessing so many people to really learn about every aspect of their lives. And that's so rewarding for me because my whole life I've been three or four things, right? I've always been an entertainer. I've always been, and I didn't get into this, after 9-11, I became a teacher. I taught multiple, uh, severely and multiple disabled children in the Bronx for Lavelle School for the Blind. So I taught computers, music, art. I worked with kids from ages three to 21, Down syndrome, Tourette's, autism, blindness, cerebral palsy, okay? so. My so heart. did the teaching lead you to the coaching? I think in a lot of ways, yeah. But I'll tell you before that, it prepared me to be a caregiver for my mother, Cheryl Taylor, because my mother had brain cancer, breast cancer in 95, metastasized to brain cancer in 2004. And I've been taking care of my mother since 2004. This October will be 16 years, God willing. Mm -hmm. So you know what I mean? So I think that school, and this only happened because of 9-11. 9-11 took me to that school because the Screen Actors Guild, we were gonna go on strike. So that year, that summer, all the TV shows, commercials, everything was shot like crazy. I worked like seven days a week that summer, okay, of 01, because we were gonna go on strike in October, potentially. 9-11 hit, TV, film, everything shut down. The whole world shut down, right? You remember. The, and in New York, everything changed. I still had to pay rent in my little studio apartment. And they had so much stuff in a can that nothing was really coming back work-wise till like maybe April, May. So my cousin, I was talking to him. He's like, you got a college degree. Why don't you come up here and teach? I'm like, come up and teach. He was the head of maintenance at the school. He's like, come up and teach. Wait, what are you talking about? He's like, now meanwhile, I had already been teaching acting at Children's Aid Society in Greenwich Village. I worked with three to six year olds and then I taught, you know, like uh, preschool and all that stuff, right? But then I taught substitute teaching, stuff like that. I always loved kids. I, I started babysitting kids when I was 10, 11. So younger kids than me, right? Because I was always so mature. 
And then, um, and I was also a hustler because I was always about making my own money. I've been working, so, you know, I got my license to work at 14 in New York, you can, but I was working since I was 10, shoveling snow, babysitting, raking leaves. I was like, I'm getting me my own Jordans, my own fly gear. Like, I was like, couldn't tell me nothing. So, but I started to um, teach acting nine to 11 year olds at the Children's Aid Society, right? So I had been doing that as I was acting professionally from 94 to like 97, then, you know, 99 all through, right? Then I get to Lavelle after 9-11. And when I was there, you know, those kids just took my heart. My cousin was like, well, come teach up here. And I'm like, okay. So I go, I, you know, apply for the job. You know, they hire me a substitute teacher. I start substituting. These kids are like pulling on my heartstrings and then they offer me a full-time position. Well, as an actor, you have to grind so hard and make so much money to get tears of your health insurance. So, you know, I was getting health insurance one year and then the next year I'd get it, but then I couldn't get dental because you got to make this many thousands, you know, and I've made enough to get basic insurance, but not dental, you know what I mean? Just whatever, right? You know, but I was in great health, had no problems, but still, you know, you're getting your teeth cleaned, all those, you know, basic things, right? And so um, I, they offered me a full-time position in February of, I started substituting November 01 in February, 2002. I started to work full-time there fell in love with the kids. And then I was there until I left to move to Arizona. And that was in, uh, I left June of 2011. I worked there from 01, late 01 to 2011. So 10 years and it was hard work, but it prepared me. I didn't know and see, this is God, this is Jesus, right? And, and I've never lost my faith, all, what I've ever I've gone through in life and you know, in Christianity and I'm still a Christian and still love Jesus. But, I, um, I know that God prepared me through that job, not only to be a, a stepfather, a father, but a caregiver for my mother. Made me a better human and a better man because you know what acting is. It was about Eric Taylor, it was about vanity. I'm just growing this back now for my wife, but I used to have long locks past my belly button. I was, you know, always in the gym. I was eating healthy. I was like, you know, my whole thing, I did print modeling. I was in a, I was in, uh, I was, oh my God. I did a print modeling ad in Japan. I was in a magazine and I was the first, this is when they first came out with, this was, what year was this? 99, 2000. They first came out with Sony and we shot by uh, West 4th Street by Tower Records, which is no longer even around. It was famous, right? In New York. And, um, uh, I was the DJ because they came out with the, uh, the CDs when you could first mix with CDs. Well, I was the, the ad campaign for that. And so I was in a Japanese magazine, you know, modeling. So I did print modeling, I did acting, commercials, TV, film, theater, stage, all of it, you know? And it was just, it was the time of my life. It was a blessing, but I've lived multiple lives. So then you go from there to the teaching, you know? But I was saying, segueing into the coaching, being a chronic illness coach, relationship coach and astrologer now, you, I, my life, and it's in my chart, but my life has always been to entertain, educate, inspire, and heal anyone that comes into my life and anyone that I meet and anyone that knows me would say that about me from people that know me from third grade, fourth grade, from friends from, I got a couple of people that know me from even before then. That's who I've been my whole life. I, I've never changed. You know what I mean? I'm a genuine, real person. And I'm, I pride myself and I teach these to my boys. I said, make sure your name, your word is bond and your name is gold. I said, my name, Eric William Taylor, wherever I go, it's respected. And that's in the projects, to the hood, to 
Wall Street to Hollywood to Broadway to anywhere to Arizona, New York, because I don't lie. I don't disrespect anybody. I've never hurt a human being. Even my ex-girlfriends, I was respectful with them and still have friendships with a lot of them. You know, I, now I'm, you know, obviously being married, it's a different type of, we're not like tight like that, but you know what I mean? But my name, no one can say anything bad about me because I've never done anything bad to any human being. And I pride myself in that. And that's how I live my life. And that's how I try to teach and inspire my family members, but also my clients, you know, in terms of healing them and helping them. Because- What's I'm, your, I'm uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, so was your move to Arizona the transition from teaching to coaching? No, I didn't know I was gonna, I didn't know what I was gonna do out here. It was really a change for health. Honestly, I was 10 years in, I had three eye surgeries. I had a surgery on my wrist. I, the winter before we left, I fell on black ice and broke my ankle so severely that I was out of work from that January to the last two days of June, I crawled back to work to keep my health insurance from my family. And it was the, the surgeon was like, you'd have been better off if you had a clean break. It was such a bad fracture. When it happened, I was a block from my job rushing to get there because my superintendent was like a little Nazi and would stand there at the time clock and, you know, sit there like, oh, you're late, you're late. You know, that pressure of not being to work late. And I'm a Virgo, so I was never late for work, but I also couldn't help the MTA and the transit system. So I'd leave my house extra early, but sometimes the trains would get so messed up. And it was a bad winter that year, 2011, and we had crazy snowstorms. It was like our first week back to work after Christmas break, maybe second week back. And it was a bad storm, maybe the first week back. And I just, a block from my job, I went down on black ice and we just found out we were pregnant. This was not with William, it was with another child that we wound up losing. And, um, which was really difficult. Um, and um, it was hard to have to call Lana. It was so humbling. I, I broke it so bad, I could not stand up. I called my buddy. He was um, from Jordan, uh, Mr. Mumani, Malik Mumani, my uh, Muslim brother. And I said, I said, brother man, he used to call me brother man. I said, brother man, come out here. He's like, what are you talking about? Where are you? And I said, I'm not coming in. He's like, why not? I said, I'm out here on the street. Come with me and help me call the ambulance and sit with me until they come to get me. It's like, I think I broke my ankle. I can't stand up. So he comes out. It's freezing cold. It was like seven degrees that morning. Um, you know, they pick me up, they take me to the hospital in the Bronx. I'm literally in the emergency room from nine, let's say 9 a.m. I didn't get home to my house in Manhattan, 95th Street, to like 10.30 at night. It was like the worst day of my life. I had to beg for pain medicine. You know what I mean? It was so crazy. And then the, the orthopedic doctor is coming off for her honeymoon. So it took ever for her to show up. She's showing wedding pictures and this and that. And then she has to come and re, you know, they have to re, um, realign the the broken i mean it was disgusting and she had to go Crack! and then i'm like ah! <laughs> and it was it was and alana was home with baby william and my older my mom and elijah my older son and she felt so bad because she couldn't leave and come you know i was just in the hospital for hours and hours and hours it was torture but so you know it was just a, a change of life because the humidity in new york I started having issues with my feet. I have a gift from my father of loose ligaments and flat feet. It was great before 30 and it actually helped to make me a great athlete. But then after 30, loose ligaments and flat feet, it ain't nothing but pain. So, so then 
you know, I'm, you know, I'm out here, I'm doing well. Actually, I started to get into sports radio, another career and another thing in my chart. And I was doing two different sports radio shows, had a bunch of success and we were, we were killing it. I mean, I'm interviewing, uh, in my first show I was doing, my buddy Edgar Burgos, we're interviewing Fat Joe and Larry Johnson and actor Leon from Cool Runnings. And I interview, you know, just uh, Lord Furness, all these rappers and um, everybody in sports, you know, from different, you know, players from, you know, the Knicks. I interviewed uh, Chris Mullen, Hall of Famers, like all this stuff. And then my other best friend from New York, me and my buddy Tal, one of my Jewish friends, we started a show together too called Ray and Tay Today. It was like the first three letters of our last names. His last name is Ray Side and mine's Taylor. So we were Ray and Tay Today. The other radio show was Hard to Guard Radio. And so we started doing it and we're interviewing and we're getting all these guests. And the only thing that prevented us from really getting on, neither one of us was a former athlete and neither one of us was a sports journalist, you know? So, and that was frustrating, but we got an interview with CBS Sports Radio. They actually offered us a job doing sports radio in Arkansas, but we were not gonna go to Arkansas and our wives would have killed us. And they were like, we can send you a job in Arkansas making 25,000 a year. And we're like, uh, we're grownups. We can't make 25,000 a year and we got kids. So we can't do that. But we told them, if you have anything in Arizona, New York, LA, we would consider it. You know, but a couple of years ago, we kind of phased the show out. And every once in a while, we'll do, you know, even during this pandemic, we've done a couple of shows and we bring it up just because we built such a fan base and a following. And, you know, it's, um, you know, we had John Sally on the show. We had Eric Dickerson, Hall of Fame running back. Randall Cunningham was now a pastor. We had him on during the Michael Sam stuff when, you know, being gay and being drafted in the NFL. We had that show. That was really... And I believe now with social media and all these other podcasts and like all these yeah. different outlets, I think it'd be easier to have more of a successful show without the backing of, you know... Well, people. yes, but you know what it is? It's hard to get the uh, financial backing to you know because you have to get either advertisements you know so you make money for from it and that was the the dilemma you know what i mean so we were trying to get an interview with espn um they showed a little cbs sports showed the most interest nbc and fox a little espn a little but mainly like i said cbs sports offered us a, a, an actual job but you know we just couldn't do arkansas for that little money but just to show you like we were hitting home runs in the minor leagues basically you know, we were about our business, like very professional. And from day one, we treated it like we were already on ESPN because that's my buddy Tal and I, we were friends since like we were 11 or 12. He moved to my block on 95th Street and we, you know, we love sports. And that was part of a huge part of our friendship. I mean, we're friends without it, but we're, you know, that was a big part of our friendship. And our tagline was talking sports with friends. And it's really good. You know, I'll send you an episode. You got to check it out. It's a really good show. We, but we've talked about a lot of things on that show from social justice, criminal reform, sexism. We even talk, had people on talking about sex trafficking a year or two ago. Like we've had some heavy shows and some good stuff. And, you know, and I'm something that I'm really proud of. And it's been a great experience. I've interviewed hundreds of guests between both my shows. Uh, we had a huge show with Smush Parker on, on my other show, Hard to Guard Radio, where Smush Parker was talking about Kobe Bryant. This is, you know, back when he was still playing with the Lakers and he was bad-mouthing Kobe and that kind of went viral. And we got in a bunch of magazines and stuff about it and stuff. It was like a huge show. Like, you know, 70,000 views. Like, it was like crazy. And like, we got like written up in some stuff. But, you know, it's just, um, 
you know, it is what it is, but it was a lot of fun. You know, I think we even, I think we even interviewed Marlon Williams on a show before and different people, you know, because my boy Edgar used to work for the Knicks. You know, he was an equipment manager, so he had all the connections and he would get the guests on and stuff. But when my buddy Ray, my boy Tal, we did Ray and Tay today, we didn't have his, uh, his uh, phone book per se, you know, to get all the guests, but we started hustling. Do you know, I was pulling in guests, sports journalists and stuff just from Twitter, just from hustling and grinding on Twitter. I pulled, wow. in, I pulled in former athletes just from reaching out, grinding, talking about my sports knowledge, showing them our show, that we were about our stuff, you know, and then connections through friends. And I mean, we've interviewed, you know, Hall of Fame journalists, you know, Al Troutwig, we had him on and he would do the Olympics. And we were talking about Lance Armstrong before the whole thing with the steroids, with his cycling in the Olympics. We, I mean, we've had some really big hitters on the show and big topics and, you know, so I'm really proud of it. And it was a great experience. But I think what got me into the coaching was my own illness. I got sick um, before my twins were born, April 2013. I walked outside my front door one day to look for the cable guy who was supposed to come, getting ready for my sports radio show. We were having internet problems. And a gust of wind came and flew in my nose, my mouth. It was like Ghostbusters. And I told, I came inside, told my wife, Alana, I said, baby, I think I'm going to be sick because it was such a violation. You know, you know, your body and stuff. And I'm very in tune with my body. And, um, and the next day I wound up in the ER, thought I was going to die in a bed with a heart attack. Then each day from there on, I got sicker and sicker and wound up with valley fever. And Valley fever is in dry areas in Washington, California, Nevada, um, Arizona, um, Utah. And it's like a fungus that's in the ground and in the soil. And they say it's like a mixture of, you know, from animals or rats or different things and mixed with all this stuff. And it just, I don't know, it's just a bad fungus. And usually it shows up in your lungs and the people in those states know how to look for it and it can attack your lungs, your respiratory system, uh, your joints, body aches. So for me, it didn't go to my lungs. It went to my head and my neck. Mm. And it caused constant mucus and inflammation throughout my whole body. It got so bad, April, that I didn't get diagnosed. Western medicine, I, because my lungs were clear, they didn't think I had valley fever. But meanwhile, each day, my body was producing mucus as if I had the flu. And, you know, the lymphatic system couldn't drain fast enough. So it started like spreading and spewing throughout my whole body. Sorry. And so that's happening. The tw she's pregnant. The twins, I got William, Elijah, my mom, you know, and, you know, this was seven years ago now. So this April made seven years. And I'm getting sicker by the day. You know what I mean? And it was just, it was devastating. And so I couldn't, it got so bad that when the twins were born after the first couple of months, the pain got so bad, I could not physically go like this. I'll make sure you guys can see me. I could not feed my babies with the bottle. Mm. So it started to cause inflammation and pain in my neck. My neck got severely stiff. My face was like five times the size, full of mucus. I finally, through my acupuncturist, who I think kept me alive, found a woman that was speaking to Alana, my wife, that sent me to a naturopathic doctor because nothing was happening in Western medicine. Nobody would help me. 
you know, the best that they gave me was uh, Percocet, pain medicine, because I was in so much pain just to get out of the bed and to be able to even do my sports radio show or try to do any writing because I was trying to write a screenplay at the time. I couldn't get out of the bed. I could barely walk. I lived with ice, heat, and Percocet for almost a year and a half. It took seven. Oh my God, a year and a half this is going on? Oh my God. So like, what is your confidence? I mean, as a man, like you got a whole family and you are really sick. I was destroyed, I was devastated, but I was trying to push through. I called it my own internal Vietnam. I was going through a war because you couldn't see it, but it was all internal. Like I could barely walk. I mean, the, you know what I mean? So like my kids, I couldn't go trick-or-treating. I couldn't, you know what I mean? Like I, like just everything, like the joint pain. I couldn't walk. And during this time, my arches collapsed. I had two wrist surgeries. I had um, carpal tunnel and then another one. I had um, four surgeries on my feet. My arches collapsed. I had uh, uh, my arches lifted. They lengthened my calf muscles. And I had two other procedures. Like I went through, I've, I've suffered the last seven years of my life, like nobody's business. And so like, what do you think that you were to learn from? from- um, I think for me, um, it increased my faith. It made me never question God, never made me question Jesus. How was that? I mean, because you were sick for a long time and then it's like- uh, Because, because I, I, I realized it made me look within because I, I've been trained to do this my whole life, right? I've already suffered. <laughs> suffering was not new to me, right? I've mastered suffering. The first 30 years of my life were like, you know, it was hard as hell. So, you know, I, um, one, it just reconfirmed how tough I was, how strong I was, and I could overcome and handle anything. Because you could survive this. Like, there were times where I did not know if I was, I thought I had a brain tumor. I had an MRI. I was scared. I thought I could be dying. Some people do die from valley fever. Um, I finally did get this diagnosis from a naturopathic doctor, but that was all Western Eastern medicine. So guess what? <laughs> it took out all my savings, drained all my money, um, you know, put us in financial hardship. Um, it was, uh, it was devastating, you know, and, you know, it was hard because, you know, friends didn't understand. People couldn't understand. You know, I had, I had put a post on me on Facebook because when I went to this naturopathic doctor, they put me on diflucanazole within a week of being on diflucanazole and I did a garlic IV. I'm having IVs in my, you know, in my vein. Garlic IV, a week of on this medicine, I was able to get off the Percocet. And I had doctors treat me like I was some freaking junkie and just so disrespectful, I could smack the mess out of them. Cause I'm like, you don't know me. Like I'm taking this Percocet I don't, and I'm, I came to them to see if they can numb the nerves in my neck to take away the pain, right? I'm not coming to get more medicine. I'm trying to get off this crap. And and Alana would get mad at me because I would undertake the medicine and suffer in the pain. But I knew before this whole outbreak broke out, I knew the strength of that medicine. And I said, baby, I can cause an addiction. The very way they're treating you, you can actually. And I said to her, I don't want to get addicted. Right. This stuff is no joke. And I knew it. 
You see, I know my body and I've always been very connected and intuitive to my body, to nature, to everything, right? And I knew when I took it, I'm like, ooh, this is some stuff. Now I could never take Vicodin because that was so strong and it made me loopy, you know, but you know, I had it one time after surgery and, you know, but at this point I've had multiple surgeries, you know, now I'm up to 13 surgeries, but at this point before these six, I guess I was at like seven surgeries in my wrist, I had a deviated septum and then eye surgeries. So, you know, I, you know, been through some pain, you know, I mean, I had a assist and torn ligaments in my wrist from lifting up kids out of wheelchairs and putting them in standards and this and that. And years later, you know, it used to just be, oh, call the men. It was like four men at my job, right? And then we started all breaking down, messing up our backs. And then they finally changed the policy, my stupid principal and superintendent, you know, oh, that it should just be any two humans need to lift a child out of a wheelchair or into a standard, not just a man, one man, because it used to just be me doing it. That's not good. You can't lift a disabled child who's swinging their arms or in a wheelchair. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. Oh my God, it was so bad. I still have back pain, still have issues with my wrist. I still have permanent numbness in my finger. Thank God for typing because my handwriting was always terrible. You know, <laughs> they said, you got to either be famous or a doctor with the handwriting I had, you know? And I said, well, I'm pretty much famous. I've been famous my whole life, you know? So, and I said, you know, I, I said, that's okay. I said, you know, I can type or whatever, you know, because I got permanent numbness in my right hand and I'm a righty, you know? But um, so, you know, I went all these surgeries, but literally I stopped the Percocet and I just wanted to go back to all these people. I'm like, see, See you dumb MFs, I'm nobody's junkie. You don't know me, I'm nobody's addict. I was a, a husband, a son, a father, suffering in pain, trying to function for my family the best that I could. So I could help my kids get ready for school or give them a bath at night or try to be a loving husband and support. You know, I'm just trying to exist. So it was that real and that bad, but I thankfully I got off that. I started to do anything and everything. I did leeches leech therapy. So you put leeches on your body and they have a homeopathic medicine in them. This is God's first medicine, right? Like bloodletting. And it's called the Herogene. They sell them in Long Island and North Carolina, only two places I think in America, right? And um, they ship them in different places in the country. And so the, the therapist at this place, he would get the leeches. I think he got his from North Carolina. And he would put leeches, I had shaved my head. He put leeches on the back of my head on my neck, on my liver, my kidney, different places, my feet. I had inflammation through all out my body and the mucus and the drain. I mean, and I went to, uh, I, my knee was hurting so bad. I went to my orthopedic doctor out here and I said, I think I need knee surgery. Something's wrong with my knee. He's like, no, your knee is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. He goes, that's the valley fever. He goes, unfortunately with people with melanin, which is what most people really should know is really our carbon right? Our melanin is really carbon. And so what happens is when you are black, Asian, Latino, you know, you, the, the valley fever with Caucasians, it will tend to stay in your lungs. With people of color, it can spread throughout the body. So it went everywhere. And if I've noticed as I was doing my sports radio show, it started to mess with my speech. You know, because as an MC and as an actor, I never make a mistake with my words. I never have issues recalling something. You know what I'm saying? I still memorize my rhymes from, from 97, 98 that I've written. You know what I'm saying? My brain is like a computer. I've trained my brain for mortal military combat. 
-hmm. I can verbally destroy any human being with my words. That's what the training that I've gone through, right? I am a trained assassin with my mouth as an MC. Okay. So I don't, so when I started to go through this and I'm doing my show and I couldn't find words or couldn't remember something, some sports stat or, you know, I was like, oh my God, I was having a brain, I was having brain fog. I mean, I went through it and it was scary as hell. And I thank the Lord every day. And I thank my wife because she's been the champion taking care of me and the family. My oldest son had to step in and help feed the babies when they were, you know, after, you know, cause I, I was okay the first couple of months, but by like month five or six, the pain was so severe. I, I, I could hardly- And then, I mean, we went through this uh, for a year and a half. That's a long freaking time, dude. It and- was actually like, I think it was like, it might've even been 19 months to be honest. It was, it was brutal. But what I love about, you know, these um, monumental turning points in your story is that like you could have totally went left with that because most people, especially when they're plagued by illnesses that are painful, that is one of the first things to go is faith and we want to blame God. Yeah. And so for you um, to keep that strength and actually have your faith get stronger shows a lot of strength of character. And even, you know, earlier in life, dealing with death and witnessing abuse and, you know, these terrible behaviors that adults do, <laughs> you know, you, you dialed into sports, you know, you, you had your music and you used music? very creative outlets instead of going down these um, destructive paths. And writing. I think I had great teachers too. I had a teacher in eighth grade that I wrote my first murder, I wrote a murder mystery, I think seventh or eighth grade in our little creative writing class. And it inspired me and it was so cool. And I had the plot and story and, you know, and she encouraged it. And then I remember uh, Mr. Fleisick in high school, he taught um, Shakespeare. And I remember, you know, I loved Othello because, you know, he was a Moor, he was black, you know? So I got into Shakespeare and Othello and Macbeth and Hamlet and, you know what I mean? And A Midsummer Night's Dream and, you know? And so it, it's, um, I think good teachers can be really inspiring too. And oh, Af- definitely, definitely. My African-American studies teacher in high school, uh, and, and also in college, Rhonda Williams, like, you know, it was, you know, a major array television and film. My minor was English and I almost had enough credits. I needed one or two classes, but I wasn't trying to stay anymore any longer, but I almost had a double minor because I took enough classes for African-American studies and learned so much and wrote so many amazing papers. And, you know, it's just, you, you have to, anybody's life, anybody's journey, it's, there's so many people to appreciate and thank. and. You know, and I'll always be indebted to my sister London for, you know, just teaching me the word and, and, and really that connection with Jesus. But I think it was always instilled from my grandparents, you know, and growing up around Baptist grandparents and my father. But I think I drifted away from it because I didn't feel that connection when my mom would take me to the Catholic Church, per se. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a beautiful experience, you know. We've had a, a rough time trying to find home churches out here. We dealt with a lot of prejudice and racism in Arizona and a lot of racist churches. And um, so that kind of pulled us away. But we would just do Bible study at home and read the word at home to our children. And, you know, so we found ways to still practice and continue and still do, you know. I think what got me into the coaching was just finding a way to transition to see how I could um, 
you know, build a new career, start to make money and use my natural gifts and talents. You know, and with the chronic illness, I suffered a chronic illness. So who's better to guide people through that than someone who suffered it, but then also was a caregiver for hundreds of disabled children and my own personal mother, right? Dealing with cancer, dealing with, you know, chemotherapy, radiation, the proper diet, helping someone when they regurgitate, being with multiply disabled, retard, you know, and children with mentally retardation, you know, um, autism, all that stuff, you know what I mean? So I've walked this life. I've walked this life of service, you know? And so to transition that to that, and then even with the relationship coaching, which I was doing since I was like, you know, 11, 10, you know, even, you know, younger ages, and then a teenager with my friends, you know, people always would come to me for advice. So I've talk always... a little bit more about this chronic illness. You said, like, is it like a part of your coaching practice? Or... Yeah, so I do relationship coaching, chronic illness coaching, and astrology. And then I can, depending on the client and their desires, because I respect a lot of people aren't into astrology. So I don't use it for every client. It's only for people. I have some clients who just come to me for astrology, getting birth charts done, uh, sinistry relationship charts done, right? And then um, I have clients who I just work with relationship coaching and I have the elevators to marriage, which is my program, which is 11 floors. And I take people through the steps of unlearning, right? Because this is the spiritual homework we're supposed to do in our sort of 22 to 32, right? And, and, and that time where the cerebral cortex is still forming, which is between 25 and 32. So legally, you're not, you're an adult at 18, 21. That's habernashi, that's BS. You really, and it's more women, start really adulthood at 25. And then for men, it kind of lingers in a little bit later because men are late slower than women in terms of really your cerebral cortex forming. And this is, you know, the functioning part of your brain still forming in your medulla, medulla oblongata, really from 25 to 32. And that co coincides with your Saturn returns in astrology. You know, so legally, if it was up to me, I would say no one should start dating until 25. And most people shouldn't get married until at least they hit 29 when their uh, Saturn returns. Um, so, you know, with my coaching, I help people in, in a myriad of ways. My program really is about unlearning what your parents, society, the school system, our government, you know, high school, college, elementary school, have your siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, what they've all put on you. Keep the positive, but let go of the negative. Let go and unlearn that and start to be introspective, start to self-analyze, take the, because a lot of people don't, look, a lot of people can be functioning billionaires, right? You could be Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade, they committed suicide. They had no real reason, but we don't know what, the pain they were suffering with inside. Heath Ledger, right? Brittany Murphy, all these different people. People suffer through so much pain in life. But if you don't do the spiritual homework, you don't do the introspection, you don't take the time to really develop and learn that inner intimacy, but self-love, right? You can't truly love another if you don't love yourself. You know, and I know you talk about this too with your programs, and it's so true. And once we can really have self-love, then we can really have that godly, right, fruits of the spirit from Ephesians and that agape love and really love others unconditionally. But you've got to love yourself first. 
You know what I'm saying? And it comes from loving God, loving yourself. But forgiveness is the key. So I talk to my clients about forgiving your parents, writing letters to your younger self at different ages so that way you could heal yourself and focusing on bad and good and negative, positive and negative memories. You know what I mean? So writing a letter to young Eric at seven, letting him know that it's gonna be okay. Your father was murdered, your mother was shot, but you're gonna be okay, Eric, you know what I mean? And do you know how healing it was? One night at Bible study or at a church service, the Times Square Church in New York City, huge church in New York City, uh, Times Square Church. Um, and a famous pastor used to run it, he passed away, Pastor David Wilkerson. And I remember getting on my knees and just crying one night, people surrounding me, putting hands on me and truly forgiving, forgiving my father for being murdered. I had to forgive him because inside the young Eric felt abandoned. Yeah, it felt like he left you. Yeah, like it, like it was something that was in his control. Yeah, yeah. And, but the freeing and the freedom, when I came home, I forgave my father, but then I came home and I said, mom, I'm sorry forgive me i'm sorry if i was rude or angry and you know because you know kids we get angry at our parents for all types of silly stuff and we have our you know me and my mom had some good years some bad years you know we had rough times you know and i had to forgive her and ask her to forgive me and when i did that man i was glowing and that's the thing i i've put in the work and i've put in the work so that I was prepared to receive the gift from God to get Alana. And I do things with my clients with character traits and working from 20 down to five. I do things, you know, different trainings and different things to get you prepared to really have a loving relationship and marriage. And so my program, I went through it. So I know it works. I'll be married 12 years come June 30th. And I am so happy and we are blessed with four boys and we've been to hell and back in 12 years of marriage. Yes, yes. My sickness, <laughs> we've, you know, we've, we've. Our lost. audience is very familiar with Alana's story. No, and we've, <laughs> we've, we've lost, you know, we've lost three children. We've had two children very sick and almost pass away from respiratory issues. And in, in, in the children's ICU for 23 days and 17 or 23 days and 19 oh, days. Oh, she didn't tell us about that. Yeah. That's yeah, a lot. Jackson, yeah. and Jackson and William. William almost died. William almost died. Wow. And that's the eldest, right? No, William is the 11 year old. Okay. He, okay. he almost died. It was so serious that in the uh, at Scottsdale Shea, the, the uh, ER doctors allowed newborn babies, and you know they don't do this, newborn babies to come into the children's ICU because he had to have surgery and he was requesting his babies. That's how touch and go he was. And I'm yeah. talking about, this was October, second week of October. They were born August 14th. So they were baby babies. And the doctors allowed them to come in because he was requesting his babies. He was four years old. We almost yeah. So we, we've been through it, but you know, I, I, I am so blessed. And with the chronic illness, I also use medical astrology. So astrology works in so many different aspects of your life. And I, I would implore and encourage people, you know, to reach out to me at taylor2coaching at gmail.com. My website is taylor2coaching.com. And I am so proud to say I've blessed so many people. I've done charge for children, for their parents. 
And obviously, you know, I send it to the parent and I can, you know, curtail it. So, cause there's adult information in there and, you know, the parents have to choose when they want to share that with the child. Right. So, you know, I, you know, I, I break it down, you know, however they want it done, but I, I deal only in truth. Right. So, and I tell them, I put God first, you know, um, but I think my way of being godly and a Christian and then bringing in the spirituality of the astrology or numerology and even the medical astrology, it's, it's like a whole new level, a whole new level of spiritual awakening that I share with my clients and for myself. And this is the ringer. This is what knocked it in the hole for me. In my birth chart, you can see in my 11th house, my father's murder. It's literally in my chart. And after I saw that and I was in a class studying with an astrologer and about 15, 20 uh, students worldwide, different places all over the world, Thailand, London, Australia, parts of America. And the whole class, a pin could drop. Like it, the, the, the teacher, everybody, their jaws dropped. And we're like, oh my God. Because I have the sun, which in astrology represents your father, Pluto, and in astrology, houses and planets have multiple, you know, double entendre, triple entendre, multiple meanings, right? And so, but it literally was the sun, my father, Pluto, which can literally be death, Mars, which can be a warrior or a soldier or a weapon, right? It also can be affliction and disease, but it can be a, a weapon, right? Assertive, aggressive, impulsive energy, and Mercury which can represent cars, automobiles, short distance travel, your local neighborhood. My father was murdered in a car, outside of his car, on a short distance trip from his job to home by an adversary, a warrior weapon, right? And with a gun and killed. And it, that's literally all together in my 11th house. Okay. And my, and once I saw that, that was like a, a, a pin dropper. I was like, that's a mic dropper. I was like, you don't have to say anything else to me because of the fact that I can see in my chart, because it's not in my sister's chart. I went and checked. You don't see it. It's not that literal. It's not there. It was that literal in my chart, my father's murder. And then I've seen other things, um, including my own eye disease. My wife and the kids were in a car accident December 12th. You could see that in the chart and not a scratch on them. And Venus was right there with Saturn and the moon. I mean, it, astrology, if people are willing to give it a chance and open up their hearts and their minds and not think about the conditioning and programming and brainwashing they've been taught and don't think of it as a sin, they will understand that God controls. See, and this is where human beings get it mixed up, right? We get arrogant because we're earthlings and we're human beings. Does God only control earth? No, he controls the sun, the moon, the stars, every single planet in our universe. Don't limit God. God controls it all. So I don't, I don't take that power from him. I give it to God and I'm like, God controls it all. And yeah, so I love this because I, I had this conversation um, with my mother, I mean, with my aunt's uh, boyfriend and um, so, you know, like he just turned into this devout Christian, right? And so I started talking about astrology because, you know, you know me, every discussion comes, you know, there's astrology in there somewhere. And so he's like, no, 
I don't want any of that. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, it's a science. I was like, just like there's biology. <laughs> you it know used to be how they used the calendar. It was, it was part of the calendar back in the days. Even think about the moon. Do you know the moon has, the moon has its four phases, which is the four weeks, but within that it has seven subsets, which are the seven days of the week. And the lunar calendar in the moon is what? The same thing as a month. The moon is 30, you know, it's, it's the 30 day cycle and it's, or 28 to 30 day cycle. And it's connected with a woman's menstrual cycle. When the moon and a full moon comes out, a woman can go outside and she can link up with the moon and the moonlight, which at night also helps heal our plants and helps them grow the moon. Okay. And our sun gives us life and helps everything grow. Right. Gives us light and life, everything. Right. So God basically shows us what these planets do. And the fact that you can see Venus or you could see Jupiter at certain times, you know, you can see different planets, you know, and just the power that they have. I'm telling you, it, yeah, you, you know, and, 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 you know, and it is hard because I understand where they come from because that's what they've been told. Their whole yeah. Life. It's dogma. And like, like you were saying earlier, we have to unlearn, I call it reprogramming your own brain. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it is definitely a clearing of a slate. And so having said that, and um, me, myself, um, being, uh, I call myself having a lot more spiritual awareness than I previously had. I'm, I am a, in a constant state of growth. As and, we all um, are and should be, right? If you don't change and you don't grow, then you might as well be dead. Yeah, I believe in constant change. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, but even death is a, is a change, right? A transition. Well, it's a, just a transition, right? <laughs> right, right. So yeah. even when you die, you're, you're yeah. like literally changing. Right, and right. So, um, it's written the physical, yeah. But of yeah, course, so just listening to your story and putting these correlations together, I really appreciate your presence in my life. And I appreciate you telling us your story because you are a very special human being. Your purpose here is very profound. Just because of your experiences here in this physical time space reality have been what we call painful. And so entities that have this type of experience go through these things to be teachers and um, to give lessons to the masses. And these are crucial and critical areas in the human condition because it's painful and we hate pain. People put themselves in their own prisons just to avoid pain. So I would like to appreciate you at this moment um, and honor you um, just for your life cycles and everything that you've been through um, because you are a very special human being. Thank you. I feel the same so, way about you, but I really, I appreciate that. And I, you know, I, I really, I feel, and I know grace and mercy has been with me. You know what I mean? Throughout my life, you know, I'm sure some of my ancestors too. Um, you know, there's so many times where you feel like you're rock bottom when you're, or you don't know where this is going to come or, you know, I, I can remember a couple nights in my young twenties, struggling actor, going to bed a little hungry. You know, I, I've paid those type of dues too, where like, you know, I wasn't asking for no handouts for my sister or my mom. And, 
you know, Eric Taylor had a Snapple and a pizza and that was it, you know, and, uh, and not a pizza, a slice <laughs> and, you know, going to bed hungry. And, you know, I just, no, and that's um, what I mean, because your journey, it, it's full circle, my love. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like you've had diversity, not only in your encounter with the types of people that you have met, but also in the type of obstacles that you've had. I mean, you've seen the street, you've seen the creation of a genre of music, basically. I mean, to grow up in the 70s, yo, like hip hop era, like get out of here and to be involved in that. And, you know, to, and, and, and to be in that energy coming up from the East Coast, you know what I'm saying? And then your father was murdered. He knew a lot of in, very influential people. Then you had the college, you know, and then the home life. Like every, you have the diversity of obstacles and, and also the diversity of um, spirituality. So there's a, a, a plethora plethora of information yeah. <laughs> in that dome of yours. <laughs> no, I, I got to tell you one thing that's been kind of wild through the whole journey. I never thought I was less than or never thought I was better than. I always appreciated the struggle of being a background actor on a set, but I knew that I was a star, but I didn't you know what I'm saying? I didn't see myself as like, I'm just this. I saw this as a part of the journey to getting, you know what I mean? And I'm still going to win an Oscar and I still hope to win a Grammy. You know what I mean? Um, I've got screenplays that I need to share with the world. I, I didn't tell you, I wrote a, a film, an independent movie. Um, it almost, it, we, Showtime almost picked it up. It was called, when I wrote it, Final City. It got picked up and the producers changed the name and messed everything up. It was called, and it's out now in Fandango. It got picked up uh, by Blockbuster and Hollywood Video. I'll show you how old that was, 90, uh, 2004, 2005. And it's called Hate the Game. I co-wrote it. I casted it. I starred in it, um, co-starred in it. But it was like second AD. I was everything. I, I made it happen, you know? And then I wrote a play called um, uh, The First Supper a lighthearted spiritual sci-fi that took place in 2027. And it was these 12 people who found themselves in a position where they had to start the world all over again. It was really deep. And, um, and I think a couple of people kind of stole some stuff because I did submit it to ABC and then they came out with that series and stuff, but I don't want to get into that, but whatever. But, um, you know, like I, and, and, and I won, um, I set attendance records at the theater uh, for this new uh, TSI, Theater Studio Inc., a, play, a new playwright series for new playwrights. I was a first time playwright and set attendance records at the theater. So I was really proud of that. And, um, you know, I, I've had accolades, but I can tell you wherever I've gone, people always saw me as uh, they saw the light and the star in me. When I worked on the movie Made with P. Diddy and Vince Vaughn, Vince Vaughn came up to me and dapped me up. He didn't go up to anybody else in background or what else. He came to me. Danny DeVito came to me. Gwyneth Paltrow on the Royal Tenenbaums came up to me and, hello, nice to meet you. My name is Gwyneth. I said, hello, Gwyneth. It's nice to meet you. My name is Eric. You know what I'm saying? And so that's what I'm saying. Like people have always seen what I knew that I was. And I would tell you if my father was mur not murdered, his plans was to have me be the president of the United States of America before Barack. That's what William Kidd Taylor had planned for me before I was even, you know, he was killed and then they kicked me out of the private school because they tried to, and here's the thing too, we're talking about what's going on with all this social justice and stuff. 
and racism and things that my kids have experienced in school. When I was in fourth grade, I was falsely accused of writing on a desk. They were in between the two fourth grade classes. They had one of those desks where you could like carve things in. Some kid, and I know it was some white kid, carved in the desk, um, you know, curse words about my teacher, right? And I had sloppy handwriting. They had us write stuff on a piece of paper and they said that I did it and blamed it on me because my sloppy handwriting, they were compared it to a carving in a, in a wood desk. Ain't that some stuff? And then I was asked to leave the school and my mom didn't want to fight it and get a lawyer. So after four, and I was devastated. Fieldston is one of the most prestigious schools in the world and in Riverdale in New York City or New York in the Bronx. And my father had me there and my mother had me there. And I believe that from there, I could have probably gone to Harvard or Yale, would have had a whole different life and experience. And my mindset, and it was so funny, one of the astrologers, when he looked at my chart after we talked about my father, one of the guys in the class, not the teacher, but one of the students who was like way advanced. And he was like, he's like, honestly, your birth chart is presidential. And I was like, that's funny, you see that? And I started cracking up. I was like, that's funny you say that, because I always joke about 2028, when I'm 58 years old, I'm gonna run for president of the United States of America. I was like, so that's pretty funny, you know? I was cracking up, you know? But that's what he said. He said, your birth chart is pretty presidential. You know, and I was just like, okay, I'll take that. I'll receive that. Yeah, and then maybe not even a fucking president of the United States, like, <laughs> fuck that. I mean, you know, a president for the masses. You know what I'm saying? A leader I, for us. You know, it's funny that you say that because it's, we are not only at six that I had that feeling of taking care of my mother and my sister. Throughout my life, and it's actually in my chart, I've always felt this great responsibility just for humanity, for healing it. You know, because I've always been, when I tell you that I've had friends of every walk of life, you know, I've had people that I know are dear heart racist, love me. You know what I mean? I can make the, the, the strongest, you know, this person see the light in me and love me. And, you know, and, and you know, really go from, you know, the bourgeoisie of, of the black and white elite to straight up hood dealing drugs, you know, with anybody, you know what I'm saying? And I've been able to walk in both worlds without any problems my entire life, always have. And I think I always will. I face more racism out here in Arizona than anywhere else. And, you know, I just, I feel like it's their loss because I have so much to offer and to give. And I, you know, I, and I've even had, you know, these racists in my home and entertained them and treated them with nothing but class and respect. And they've never done the same for me. But that's the type of man I am. You know what I mean? I'm better than them. You know, right, and we that. lead by example. Yeah, you know what I mean? I don't get down in the mud with dirty souls. Like I said in one of my rhymes. No, and then it totally takes you out of alignment. Like, no, like does. we're too selfish for that. Because when you're out of alignment, you're not in alignment with your purpose, who you are, who you are supposed to be. And so when you're not feeling good or you're angry or you're feeling these heightened, lower vibrating emotions, no, like who's worth that? No, and you have to, and that's what I always talk about um, with my coaching program and with my astrology, you have to exist and try your best to be on your highest vibration because we can all for, fall short of the glory of God when we're on a lower vibration. We can do anything. Humanity can be at its evilest, sickest, evil point like Derek Chavan killing George Floyd. You know, when you're on your low vibration, you have such self-hatred that it's so easy for you to take another life and kill a human being. 
You know what I mean? When, when the reality is God created everything to be in perfect harmony from the humans to the animals to the plants, you shouldn't be killing anything, okay? You know, and it's not to get all preachy about it, but that's just the truth, you know? And so I think, you know, Mother Earth is, is, is fighting back a little and, and, and I think humanity is starting to see we've got we to gotta change. We've got to get it right. We have to fix stuff because we've been living so wrong you know, and just like the Roman Empire fell, this empire will fall too if we continue to live in this sin and this evil and this greed. I have a bunch of eisms, and I, you know, always used to consider writing a book about it. And one of them is, capitalism does not breed humanism. Okay, and I used to say, who thought you know, it would? <laughs> and I always say, you know, tears, your tears, clean, you know, really truly heal and cleanse your soul. You know, and just like my podcast on the one TV is the knowledge is love podcast, because I always say when you love someone, you keep them in the know, because if you ever have to guess, assume or believe you can do that wrong. So when you love someone, you keep them in the know because knowledge is love. Exactly. Well, Eric, tell us where, I know you told us a little earlier, but tell us where we can go and find all your services and everything that you have to offer. So basically, you can go to tailoredtoyourcoaching.com, and that's tailored, the number two in the letter. Well, tailored. Yeah, tailored, you know, like Taylor and then ED, tailoredtoyourcoaching.com. The best way to email me is tailoredtoyourcoaching at gmail.com. And you can inquire and look at my website about my work. You can see my videos. You can go to my YouTube page, Taylor to Coaching, um, all my social media, and see you know, a lot of my videos. I have a lot of my work. I, I'm very excited. I've got a very organic cult following on YouTube where I'm getting so many followers and clients and subscribers. It's just so much love where I don't get the love. So like Jesus, right? Nobody honored him in his hometown, right? So I get so much love, not from friends and family, but I get so much love from complete strangers. And that's okay. Cause yeah, that's how it goes. That's yeah. People, other people will wake up and you know, they'll want to get on the train when I'm all big or whatever, but, but that's okay. I still love them anyway. But I also love them so much that it frustrates me because I want to help heal them and awaken them. Because I know, I know, I know 110% that I've done more investigative work than most human beings in 49 years, almost 50 years, than people have in multiple lifetimes in terms of uh, doing the research, applying it to my life, finding out what works, what doesn't work, and then moving forward to heal self and then to heal others. And so I put in that work and that's what really makes me a good healer for chronic illness coaching, for the relationship coaching and for, you know, astrological birth charts and numerology. And so I tell people, hit me up at taylor2coachinggmail.com. Twitter, it's at taylor2c. Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube is just taylor2coaching. And I promise this Virgo will be of service to you and will heal, help heal you on your journey and just guide you and hold your hand and inspire you, entertain you, educate you, and take you to new heights and levels that you've never imagined for yourself. And through the birth chart, you can learn about your North Node, which is your destiny, your 10th house or Midheaven, which is your career, your home life, your roots, your fourth house, relationships, marriage, contracts, business negotiations, your seventh house. 
You know what I mean? And so how do people go about getting these birth charts, especially if their birth time is so, not on their birth Well, that's the hard thing. You, ha- you really need to know your birth time. You need to give me the information, your name, your date of birth, the year, time, city, state, and time of birth, right? If you don't know it, then it's really hard. And what, what astrologers will do if you don't have the time, if you can have a guesstimate, that's good, right? But if not, you can do two different charts. You could do a guesstimate. Let's say if you, you're like, oh, it was sometime in the afternoon, right? The problem is the rising sign ascendant can switch every two and a half hours. And that sets up your whole chart in terms of your house placement and sometimes where your planets are placed in your chart. And your chart tells the story of your life your maybe if you believe in past lives your past life your future life it, it it shows your children your destiny who you can marry the type of person you're attracted to your psychology emotions your health health issues can even you know i wouldn't say show your death but it can show where you could be prone to illnesses no astrologer should ever predict your death if you go to somebody walk away from them and come to me because that's not fair and it's not right and nobody can accurately predict that only god knows the time right so but the medical astrology it goes from your head to your foot so i can tell you where you are prone to sicknesses or illnesses looking at your sixth eighth and twelfth house i can tell you by your sun moon and ascendant where you could be prone to you know maybe issues with your back your neck your throat kidneys knees right The Pisces rules the feet, Aquarius, ankle, shin, Capricorn, knees, bones, your Leo heart, and Aries is the head, the face, the orbital bone, skin. You know what I mean? It literally goes from head to toe, from Aries down to Pisces to your feet. So there's so much, and then the planets interact with that as well. So there's so much to learn from your chart about your spiritual health, your physical health, mental health, all of it. Chiron, the wounded healer, is your energy antenna, and it can show where you might have gotten a physical, emotional, or spiritual wound between ages, birth, and 18 months, and then sometimes I'm even learning more where it can show, depending on the degrees of your Chiron placement, that there could have also been an additional wound um, where you have issues dealing with your sensitivities of energy around the degrees so whether it's 27 degrees there could have been an event at 27 nine degrees you know i think my chiron's at eight or nine degrees so it was the wound that kind of came right around that time of both parents being shot and then learning about my vision right and my vision loss you know so there's so much in the chart so do you have any suggestions you know, where people, like, if it's not on their birth certificate, do you have any suggestions? Well, you, try to, you, know, you could try to go find out from your mom, the hospital, you know what I mean? Because usually it should be on the birth certificate if you can't get it. If not, you know, you try to get the best you can from any fa- family members that were around at the time or no. Um, like I said, if not, I can do like a, they call like a, like a sun solar chart. So I would set the chart at your sun sign. And that will still give me a general basis of your planet. And that's what some astrologers do around. And so astrologers do videos on Derek Chauvin and George Floyd and their connection. They were literally connected, the murder and, the, and how he died. And he just did the, that sun solar chart. It was really scary. So even through that, you could still see a lot of things. So, right. you know, yeah, so there, there's ways to help you, but try your darndest because 
you really want to know because that exact time is a game changer. Now, like, for example, I have to get my mother's birth time. I don't have it, but I still know a lot of her planet placements because I know the city, the date, the year, stuff like that. So certain things don't change with the time, but the rising sign and planet placements do change. So okay. reach out to me. I'm willing you know, to help you with all aspects of that. I mean, it can really help you for relationships. What I do is a full 12 house report. It's written. And then I put in video links explaining the houses because I want you to have this forever. So you can refer to it anytime. And then you also learn a little bit about astrology, but you can take little bites because it's so much knowledge and it's so overwhelming. So with this 12 house report, you'll see my first house. And what does that mean? And let's say you're Gemini rising, right? And then let's say your second house is Cancer. But in your second house, you have the Mars. So I explain, well, what does Mars mean in the second house in Cancer? So that's what the, the right, the 12 full house report breaks that all down. You learn about that, right? Then I do a custom video summary. It sums it all up for you. So you could really just watch that. And I explain it in layman's terms. So you're like, okay, what does all this jumbo wumbo mean? I break it down for you and go through in that custom video summary. I go through, you know, I verbally talk to you, see my face. Then I, you know, literally go on a computer and I take you through your chart and explain every house, the 12, the Zodiac wheel is a 12 house wheel. And it starts going from one, you know, two, three, three, and goes all the way around the 12. And I explain that all to you. So you have that. And it's a game changer to be a better parent, a better friend, a better daughter, a better sibling, a better, be a better human being. Better I can human vouch being. for that. Astrology <laughs> is one of the main focal points of my life because that, it definitely changed my life. I understood why there was inner confusion in some areas, you know, like yeah. it, it definitely changed my life and it taught me a lot about myself and it was super amazing because like you said, it's like you looking at whatever you reading and you like, how you know me like that? <laughs> and, and it's so funny because right, people will say, Oh, I read the horoscope. That's BS. I'm not like that Taurus description. And it's like, yes, of course not. Because that's some general daily basic horoscope for some local newspaper. And it's, it's, it can't be accurate because guess what? Your chart, exactly. you are every element of your chart. That's why there's, you're one of one. Every human being has their own print, footprint on this world, in this universe. And your chart is that intricate that even my twins are seven minutes apart and everything's the same, but in one chart, they have like something in a different house than the other chart. You know what I mean? So, and then there's a total difference in numerology because the name that your parents give you creates a, a vibration in the universe and the earth. The world is all math and science. It's all mm. vibration and energy, okay? And that's even sort of the manifestation of God is vibration and energy. And that's what he used to create the planets in the universe. You know what I mean? So, you know, when you learn yourself through astrology and numerology, ooh, you become a bad girl or boy because you start to not only have self-love, but that self-awareness. And when you start to understand yourself, then you can stop and be like, whoa, 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 I'm not doing that. That's not aligned with my purpose. That doesn't serve me that is my lower vibration. That's not who I really am. You know what I mean? You, you, you start to naturally become more self-critical and you don't base yourself and your success on, 
I work at uh, on Wall Street. I work for Goldman Sachs or I work for Chase Bank or, you know, I'm a Hollywood director. You start to base your life on your soul's purpose and how you can help serve and heal the world. Because when you walk in your North Node, you are fulfilling your life's purpose and then you find out how you can bless others. That's when you're rich. Not when you got a billion in the bank or you're Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or these other people. It's when you are spiritually awakened and alive and you really love the collective and all of humanity. You wouldn't have time to be racist. These people who are racist, they don't love themselves and they don't even understand the beginning. That's my, oh my God, thank you for saying that because that is one of my famous quotes, honey. You act out what you feel inside, okay? Mm-hmm. How about that? How about that? So you tell it on yourself. I received that. <laughs> uh, All right, that. Eric. I love this. Okay, and so I'm so glad that we're having this discussion too because I'm also, I will be um, talking to you later about your services because okay. I also want to open that up for everyone since we are showing how people are thriving and we are talking to entrepreneurs entrepreneurs <laughs> and professionals. <laughs> and so um, also the people that I'm interviewing, I'm, I'm going to be doing, you know, using their products too and then doing videos on that. Oh, awesome. um, I'm setting up, I mean, this is my community. I'm, I'm starting a movement here. You thrive. Uh, that's every what it's all about. Good, good soul uniting. And so people can come to one location and just get a plethora of information. You know what I'm saying? Right. That is about you thriving. So, you know, your wife is that. And I commend you and applaud you for doing that. And I got to tell you, since the first time I met you, and I got to shout out Lanita Nash for connecting us, your spirit just, and we've never met in person. I'm in Arizona, you're in Chicago. And your spirit, your joy, your smile, your energy, your everything, it erupts through technology, through everything you do, through your words, your humanity, your grace, your just everything. So I just want to commend you and thank you for all that you do for everybody, your clients, but just even for your friends, your old friends, your new friends. And I commend you and I I appreciate and applaud you for, you know, interviewing my wife and me and we appreciate it. But, you know, you just have a pure soul and that's part of your gift. Like even in that time that we talked real quick and I was breaking down your chart just on on a surface level, you know, you saw the confirmations you also saw a little bit of my skill and my work, so you know I'm a bad boy. But you know what I mean? But you, you, you're walking in your purpose and your destiny, and that is why you're in your highest vibration, and that's why you glow, and that's why you're genuine and your joy is real, and the world and the universe at this time needs you. So thank you for all that you do, you know what I mean? That's, that's <laughs> real. That's Eric. Real. Like, thank you, Eric. That's that Libra coming out. Look, thank you. <laughs> pop my head up. Okay, pop it up, pop it up. Pop no, but Libras also have to learn to toot their own horn. And you guys, it's not that you're so rough and critical on yourself like I am as a Virgo. And I've learned I've got to stop destroying myself because I'm tough on myself with the Capricorn moon and a Virgo sun. I, I literally, do you know, I used to put myself on punishment and I would take away when I was younger, I would take away a TV show or take away sweets or things that I like for a week or two because I hadn't attained this goal or I hadn't finished this play or this script, I would punish myself. 
Like that's the type of discipline that I have with that Capricorn moon and the Virgo sun. I'm very self-critical and self-analytical. But I tell people, if you want to know something about your business, your life or anything, go ask a Virgo. Or a Sag- oh, they're going to tell you. My mom wasn't Because, yes, a Sag would tell you from a, a, a wide angle lens because they like to look at the big picture. That's my Virgo, man. But, mm-hmm. and, and, and they're good at that. But then the Virgo will get to the minute, little, tiny details. To the details. You're like, what? To, to, to perfect what you're doing and, and, and want to literally help you be the best you can be. That's the Virgo heart and the Virgo mantra. Because the Virgo is about the daily routine, the sixth house of the daily grind, health, hygiene. You know? I always joke. I tell my wife, hey, nobody cleaner than a Virgo. Virgos would be like, I'll take three, four showers a day. Virgos don't play. You know, we're very... Uh, meticulous we're very practical you know and yeah like my computer desk might be a mess but up here everything is together and organized yeah that's how my mom is here, I was about to say, she's like organized. a miniature hoarder but <laughs> them thoughts <laughs> well you know what it is because virgos feel like if they throw something away they might need it later oh yeah that's, honey that's the Stop problem she even forget that she had yes, like, you, don't, you don't even remember that you had that my wife being a pisces she teases me about that and she like that but she'll get rid of things too fast sometimes and it's burnt her even emails she's <laughs> like why do you have all those emails i'm like because you might need to refer back to an old email you never know and and and, and there was a case you know a legal matter or something that i kept the old email and i had to you know it was financial i had to refer back to it and i had it you know I listened to her exactly. and deleted everything. It was long gone. So, you know, the Virgo way, it, 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 we're cautious and precise, but it's helpful. It, it's beneficial. And, and some might say we're free, frugal, but we're very generous and very charitable, you know. And that's my heart is of, of, of charity and service. So I would tell anybody that's watching this and your, your, your clients and different people, you know, if, if really, if you come to me, know that you're coming to truth, reality, love, and really someone that is dedicated to really being of service and, yes, and, that's so and really true. being Thank a friend, you. really being a friend. Yes. And like, this is funny too, because um, the first, the very, our very first episode was a male uh-huh. and he's a Virgo. <laughs> and then now you're the second male and you're a Virgo. So there is a lot of, you know, great messages that you guys have. That's good. That's good. And I told you, a lot of my best friends were Libras, and my sister's a Libra, and my two. Well, you know, my rising sign is Libra, honey. No, no, I know because you're a Gemini. Sun sign is Gemini. Yeah, no, I know you're. Well, the Gemini's, I got you know my son and a whole bunch of ex girlfriends, (laughs) but we don't need to talk about that. (laughs) Because I married my Pisces, and I love her. Yes, sir. I know that's right, and she's a very special person. So. Thank you so much, Mr. Thank Eric you. Taylor, for being a part of the You Thrive. My pleasure and my honor. Oh, you know. oh and, and people can check out my music, you know, check out Ecomplete on, 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 on YouTube and EcompleteEntertainment.com, you know, dot com. I might be spitting this, uh, I spit some real mean heavy bars and I might be coming out with some, some new music soon. Unfortunately, a lot of my music wasn't appreciated at the time because I'm about 15, 20 years ahead because my rhymes are very prophetic. So I'm actually might be re-releasing and re-updating my very first album, Hip Hop Forever. So look out for that. And I'm gonna be, I think, probably releasing in a week or two, hopefully my first song from the reboot of my first album called Be Careful. Yeah, and definitely, you know, you can come to the group and post it and, you know, get people's opinions on what's going on. That's what we're here for, baby. 
Yeah. yeah. So, um, but um, but I'm also you know on iTunes and Spotify. Right now, I only have one song I think on iTunes and Spotify and a music video. But um, but that song is a song called "Our Love Still Grows," and it was a rhyme that I did after Alana and I got into an argument, and I went to the studio, and I spit the whole rhyme in one take, and it was a freestyle off the top of my head, no exaggeration, nothing written, one take, perfect, perfect song, boom. And, and it's called Our Love Still Grows. It's on Spotify and on iTunes, and it's dope, and it's got a little dope little Lauryn Hill sample, so. What you see is what you get. When you yes, so you got to check that out. It's real dope. And when you hear it and then you know the story behind it, you'd be like, oh, that's that's hot. Because literally it was just boom. Off the top, one take after an argument with wifey. <laughs> right? Now that's that real love right now. That's that real inspiration, <laughs> the real creative love, that creativity, right? You know. All right. So we're going to thank everybody for tuning in. Thank yes, you guys so much. You. you guys are loved. Say your goodbyes. Be safe out there. Everybody start planting and farming with Uranus and Taurus the next it's seven years. And it's got another, what, five and a half, six years. We could have a food shortage or supply, recession, all this stuff. Please be careful. People are dying out there. Second wave, all this stuff. Mass. Please, please be careful. Don't, don't, don't let something, don't let the confusion and mixed stories and lies mess you up from protecting yourself. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be outside. I'm not saying that you shouldn't get the sun. I'm just saying, keeping your distance and mask, what is that going to hurt you if you don't get sick and cautious? People get it and die. Some people get it and nothing happens to them. But you just got to be wise and careful because even getting it, you can really suffer and scar your lungs and, and go through some really tough pain. And I've lost some people in New York. So it's not a game. It's not a joke. And you got to be wise and get ready for more to come. And it's about being spiritually disciplined. This is a spiritual test. And you have to be spiritually disciplined. And the undisciplined can wind up in the hospital or gone. So just remember that. And I say that from my heart because it's not a game. And start planting something and become a farmer because we can literally lose our food supply. And that's, that's not a joke. And that I'm not saying it will happen, but it's in the stars that it easily could. So believe me, I ain't lying to you. I heard it first here, grow your own food. <laughs> Okay. April is getting a house soon so that she can grow her own food. Organic, get the right soil, <laughs> and, and be healthy. Drink your water, zinc, vitamin C. Go outside. People with melanin have got to get vitamin D, get the supplements, but you need the sunlight. Be safe, be smart, and like I said, be careful. Eric Taylor, Taylor to you, coaching. All right, guys. So like I said, thank you guys for tuning in. You guys are loved. We appreciate you guys. And we will talk soon. All right. Peace Bye. out, everybody. Bye.